Hello? 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 Oh, it's you. No, that men call you liar! No, that men call you betrayer! No, that men call you defiler! Wow. That, that was pretty intense. <laughs> I remember that, those several quotes. Do you th- well, I want to know how I can be supportive of you. Do you think you will come out, as it were, you know, like reveal your deep, dark secret uh, during this episode? Which one of my deep, dark secrets are you referring to? About the your foot fetish. <laughs> That's something that you that only you know more about. You know about that more than I do. <laughs> Not me! Yes, you! No, it was uh, Josh. I'm pretty sure you guys had like whispered something into my subconscious when I was when I was on something when you, when you put like some sort of like chemical in my food and I passed out. I've oh. never forgotten that. Well, I don't remember that happening. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes: debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal. This is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold. When your dreams all fail and the wounds we hail are the worst of all and the bloods run stale. I wanna hide the truth, I wanna shelter you, but with the There's nowhere we can hide No matter what we breathe We still are made of greed This is my kingdom come This is my kingdom come Do you want to hear the origin of Superman or Batman? Of course not. You're listening to a geek culture podcast. You know the origins of Superman and Batman. You've always known them. Your unborn grandchildren know the origins of Superman and Batman. But what about Guy Gardner? Blue Beetle, or the Phantom Stranger? What about Firestorm, Sandman, or the Golden Age Fury? Those are just a few of the stories covered in the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comic published by DC in the 1980s. Each episode of the Secret Origins Podcast features me, 
Ryan Daly, and an all-star collection of guest hosts revealing or revisiting the legends of the DC superheroes and villains. And if you're already sick of hearing my voice on this promo, the good news is at least 50% of the talking on the Secret Origins podcast is done by a terrific guest from the podcast and blogging community. So check out the Secret Origins podcast, available on iTunes and at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Be sure to go to Secret Origins podcast to see Shag or hear Shag and I talk about issue number 20, along with Ryan Daly, of course, which introduces the origins or reintroduces the origins of Barbara Gordon and Dr. Midnight. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are January's Backroll number 48 and Gotham Academy number 14, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. And Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, I couldn't get Shag on this episode. So I was forced to get his inferior. (laughs) But my good friend nonetheless, Donovan Morgan Grant. I'm not talking to you. Oh, gosh. Inferior. I don't. No, no, no. I, I am not. You... You replaced me, and you replaced me after, like, the glorious years of 2013, where I was yeah. on the show, like, every day. Uh-huh. Every you replaced day. me with an older man, named after a Scooby-Doo character, who okay. is just this obnoxious, hateful being, who, within seconds of premiere on your show, called me out saying, I am so glad that Donovan is not here. And you brought oh. him back again, and again, and again. So... You know, I I I don't understand. I thought we had something, Stella. You know, I'm younger. I'm significantly blacker. My hair is. I have more hair than Shag. I look like uh, Will Smith from the first season of Fresh Prince. What what does he have that I don't? Okay. I don't. I just. I. Um. His favorite um, character is Firestorm. Is but how many Firestorm comics have you read? Well, just two because I had to cover them. On <laughs> but. You know, your favorite characters are like A-listers, and isn't that interesting? Because I'm an A-lister like podcast A-lister. as opposed to him. Oh, dear. Okay. Do you think maybe there are some issues here that you could hash out with Shaq? I mean, what if you ever met him? Could you get over this grudge? Well, there's a there's a, uh, a Green Lantern comic from like the 80s where Guy Gardner and Jon Stewart are like about to come to blows, and Hal Jordan's in the middle saying, uh, guys. And I think that's what's going to be our... Should the three of us ever meet at a con in the Wild Wild West? That that'll basically Ooh, be wow. it. Because of course I'm not, I'm not mad at you, even though I just said I was. I, I enjoy your company. In fact, I'm not even going to talk about Shaq for this the episode. It's just going to be me and you, as oh. it always should be. <laughs> I'm having fun right now. <laughs> I'm having so much fun podcasting with you, Stella. Forget about Shaq. Let's travel the galaxy. Oh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there, but uh. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where my head is spaces at. I'm just happy to be here and happy that I am who I am and not who you've had on here before. Wow. I don't even know how to uh, 
come off of that, honestly. But I mean, it's not like I, I mean, it would be a betrayal, I think, if I were to substitute you and Josh for Shag on my anniversary. It'd be a betrayal if I substituted you for Shag. You've already substituted me for those in the the future, haven't you? No, (laughs) the place is still there with your name on it. So it's just that he's come on some guest roles. Well, I I, I think I've had, had some content with him. And um, I, I, I think I forgot telling him that I would never forgive him, but he'll know in due time. Oh, I guess when he listens to this particular show. Uh, well, in all seriousness, though, the reason why I really wanted Don to come on is one reason is because he reviews Batgirl on the Batman universe. And I feel like besides, you know, somewhat being aware of each other's opinions, we've not really had good discussion, like discussions together on Batgirl. I thought there needs to be a time that we do this. We both really enjoy Gotham Academy, so I think there needed to be a time that we talk about it. But especially because now we're really entering a phase post-Suicide Squad of sort of Batman craziness, I think, with this 90s really heating up. Batman, of course, is going to be going, I was going to say under the knife, but that's not really what I want to say, but just this intense journey of nightfall soon and all this. And I know that the 90s was a really special era for you, and so I thought it'd be interesting to you sort of set the stage of what we can expect from Batman in these coming years. And because I, I won't really be talking about, you know, what's going on in his history unless it has to do with Barbara, of course. So I thought it'd be good to have some sort of explanation. So why, I guess to start off, what is your history with the Batman comics and the 90s? Because I know this is a special time. Well, I'm very glad you asked that, Stella. Um, this is absolutely my personal favorite era of Batman comics, uh, when I started, like, I didn't start actually collecting Batman until, like, Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne Murderer. And that was, like, around the early 2000s. But, you know, I was, I was a teenager then. It was right before I started working. But, uh, I, uh, have a comic book shop that, uh, they would, the most recent back issues up to that point was around the 80s. So, or, I'm sorry, the 90s. So I would, re- uh, I would collect Robin. I would collect issues of Detective Comics and Batman. Um, and really familiarize myself with the names like Doug Minch, Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogel, Graham Nolan. Having read, like, uh, it's, it's ironically, not not because of any uh, fear of quality, but, like, the only major series I've not read much from that era is Birds of Prey, but having read, I have I have hundreds of issues of Batman and Nightwing and Detective and Robin from that era, and it is, like, just the best era. It's when, like, a lot of the new elements in the post-crisis Batman continuity really, really were, were starting to work really well. You would have uh, Batman... Uh, written by Doug Mintz, you would have uh, Chuck Dixon writing pretty much everything else, from Nightwing and Robin to eventually Birds of Prey to Detective Comics. And it was a very coherent, very enjoyable, highly enjoyable era that is ironically beset with a lot of long-running storylines. Uh, Nightfall is the first big one. That's kind of first start- starts off everything. And then later on, you get into like Night Quest, Night Search, Night's End. Then there's Prodigal. Then there is eventually Contagion. Uh, then there's the sequel Legacy, then you have Cataclysm with the Earthquake, and then you have No Man's Land, which ends the decade. I really like this era because it, this is my particular take on Batman. He's dark, and he is tough, but he's not a jerk. <laughs> I know we, we, we kind of c- come into that a lot when we were reviewing the comics in the New 52, but this Batman, uh, he's very intelligent, and he's calm, and he's uh, he's more intense than he was pre-crisis, but he's not unlikable. 
his supporting cast has expanded. By this point, you have Tim Drake Robin, you have Nightwing, you have uh, the Gotham City Police Department. Beyond just Gordon and uh, Bullock, you have uh, Renee Montoya as a regular character, uh, other cop characters. Uh, the villains are being written better, like Poison Ivy, Two-Face, the Joker. Uh, a lot. They really get into that kind of mindset. I think that, like... It's a combination of the creative talent that was on the books and the existence of Batman the Animated Series, which was very influential, that just made this a very fun era to read. Now, I know that, you might be, I might be getting ahead of you, I hope to you stop me if I am, but I know that uh, in preparation for this era, you have been reading Nightfall. I and how has that yeah. been grabbing you so far? Yeah, so I had read No Man's Land a long time, oh, I shouldn't say a long time ago, but a couple years ago, thanks to Michael Bailey, who sent me his older copies because they were... Uh, resoliciting newer trades. So I was aware of that. And I was, you know, I knew of Nightfall, but I had never read it. And then they started republishing mm-hmm. the trades. And so I got the first part. Now they're the huge books. But when they did it right before that, it was like two books per story. So I got the first one, and I remember reading it at the annual retreat that our school goes to at Rockbridge. And I really enjoyed it. But then it sort of just hung there, and I, I didn't have the second part, and, and so it just kind of left me. So I decided since, you know, I saw, well, Baz is going to appear in just part 17. There may be another one. But I thought it's I should start and really be intentional about reading this. So I've read all of Nightfall, and then today I read the first four issues of Night's Quest. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Of course, you know, I've been asking you lots of questions because there are some background. I think, you know, for a first-time reader, which I could potentially consider myself for that, I think it really does, as long as you know certain really uh, foundational facts about Batman and Bane and all those things, which I've read Mm -hmm. Vengeance, so I've known of that. But, you know, there are some details that, you know, are mentioned in conversation that you may not be as aware of but it, it as a first-time reader i think that it really works out well yeah just super interesting it's hard to watch because batman you know is trying his best to push through you know being so fatigued and at the same time he's almost you know pushing robin away because yeah. Rob, tim constantly wants to help him out and so that's very tragic and then now you've got this new Batman, and, and that is hard to read, which was basically the second half of, of Nightfall, which, you know, I'm certainly going to be, ask, be asking some questions when we when we talk about Asriel's first story. But now it's just hard to read because, man, he's crazy. He doesn't want anything to do with Tim, and Tim is always trying to talk him down from the ledge. And I just read him. Well, I have to say that in Night's Quest, one of the issues that I read, you know, Tim comes back. And the the tunnel to get to the Wayne Manor is yes. bricked up, and I was like, "Oh, that's pretty sad." But then he goes into the cave to get his red bird, and I thought, "Oh, that's funny. That must have been where they got it from for Batman and Robin." And then there's this fight between them, and Tim was holding his own, which I really liked. But then it ends with you know, I was going to say Bane, but with Azrael, you know, holding him yes. up by the neck, and then it goes into a completely that, another story. I, I, that continues in Robin number one. Okay. Okay, so it'll come back. But I just thought, oh my gosh, what a cliffhanger. And then all of a sudden I've got the tally <laughs> man. I don't have the tally man right now. I want to tally <laughs> But no, awesome. it, I'm, I really enjoy it. But it's almost hard to read with, you know, John Paul and, and all of this stuff that he's doing. And now he's fighting against the system mm-hmm. that they call it. And it's just weird. It's a weird characterization of him because we'll get into it, I think. But this intro- introductory story that we read for this show, I feel like 
we had a good character with, you know, a bit of a heart and he was going to fight against the system. Then he puts on the Batman cow and it seems like all that's gone. And now it's cycled back in the beginning of Night's Quest and it seems like he's fighting the system again. So I feel like there's some inconsistency and I'm trying to figure out, is John Paul, you know, this good guy with a bit of an edge or is he a bad guy that's trying to be good? Uh, oh, totally. No, that's, that, that is, that, that is the question of, uh, the, the night, the post-Bane Nightfall story. And that is, I don't think you'll be disappointed in how that turns out in terms of exploration, mm-hmm. but throughout the end, uh, you know, where is mine is that? And is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? It's funny because Jean-Paul Valley, Azrael, is one of those characters from like the 90s Batman era that was just huge. He was a very important character. And he, when he went away, he's not been, he's not been seen since to where like, I'm not sure if, any younger listeners that are li- listening to this podcast have any idea who he is. And it is kind of ironic. I mean, uh, Josh and I were talking on the Gotham Chronicle that we did this week that uh, people may not be very familiar with Sarah Essen, but she was big in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of era where, like, you know, you have all the familiar characters, but you also have an extended supporting cast, which are really made good on in terms of their potential and their visibility. I- I- I'm really happy that you're reading this because I love it. Nightfall is my favorite crossover story, especially... Uh, Part one, Broken Bat, but just the whole story, because I read it when I was uh, 13, and it really left an impact on me, but uh, just generally speaking, I think that, like, the psychological examination of the characters and the writing of the characters, I just, I personally don't see that as consistently or as oftenly written these days, and I think that, like, this is sort of the foundation for why we like these characters, mm-hmm. I think you'll find, and you can see, because I know you're not the huge, hugest Tim Drake fan, but he's so visible in the story, I think that you can, it'll it probably shines a better light as to why people like him mm-hmm. as their favorite Robin as opposed to, like, you know, Teen Titan stories or whatever. Yeah. And and I had read, you know, Lonely Place of Dying. So I had been getting a, a, a taste of his character. And I've really been enjoying him, just the, the way that he plays Robin, basically, to Batman and really trying to... Well, first of all, you know, the only place to die was a big, he was trying to be a morale booster almost. That was, that was his intro. Yeah. And, and that was trying to get Batman into, into the game and, and back to where he was and, you know, saying, you need this, Robin. And I, I think that's, that's sort of his, his, uh, his shtick, I think, throughout is that he's always trying <laughs> to be that morale booster. And I think it really helps, but it's just sad that, you know, people, it's not getting through to people the way that it, it needs to. But no, I've really been in, enjoying his character. Um, there's a yeah. Oh, so there's a couple of moments in Nightfall that I really like. Where often is like, like in part one, uh, he he's, he's like you say he's constantly shutting Robin out just to kind of keep him safe. Yeah. And then that moment where he completely fails to stop the Firefly, and Robin's like, "Let me help you." And Batman just kind of yells at him like, "You know, I have to be reactive. I have to do this." And Tim's just saying, "You taught me better than that. You taught me to be smart and to not be reactive to use our minds." And he's kind of like there's kind of a role reversal. I think that moment. Uh, kind of blinky miss as it maybe illustrates the value of that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there were a couple moments where he was being a better detective than Batman was because mm-hmm. Batman was just really off his game and rushing into things without thinking them through properly. And Tim was just doing great work to figure out where Firefly was going to go next and like the connections between all that. And that's another thing about that story is I really love Hush. And one of the reasons I love Hush are sort of the um, all the characters that you see. In totally, there. So absolutely. So if you're a fan of Batman and, you know, his cabinet of characters, then that's going to be an awesome story for you to read. And that's what's also great about Nightfall, especially the beginning, because right, Arkham is 
practically destroyed, not completely, but you've got all yep. these great characters out, like the quintessential Batman characters that you can learn about, which I which I think are good. Now I'm in this like the twin, the Robin, uh, the cowboy twins. Oh, uh, the sugar twins. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> but no, it's really fun, and I can tell if I'm really grabbed by a story if I really if I want to read many issues in one sitting, which I've been, because even you commented, like, when I was texting you that, oh, man, you've been getting through this really quickly, and it's true, because I've been sitting <laughs> and doing, like, six issues at once, if you know, if I have time, so I'm really happy that, you know, I finally decided to do it, because I knew I was at some point, and I think it's probably one of those stories that, if you're a Batman fan, or if you want to learn more about him, that this is a huge piece of his history that you should read. I would like to say just finally, uh, in terms of Oracle's relation into this, before, I'm not going to bring up Nightfall Part 17 yet, but like, uh, in the broader Batman era of the 90s, uh, you said, you know, you're you're only going to read stories if they relate to Oracle. You will be, you will be finding yourselves, yourselves, yourself, (laughs) you will be finding yourself. It's like Shag is definitely on the show or something. (laughs) Don't say that name! (laughs) And who owns that wand? We do not speak his name. Um, you will find yourself uh, involved, not involved, but like peeking into a lot of stories yeah. because as the decade goes on, she just becomes more and more prolific as a character for the Bat family, a character for the DC universe. And honestly, it's honestly just like, you know, Oracle, what's the nearest direction to the nearest McDonald's? Okay, this one, Batman, the yeah. kind of thing where like she has cameos. And from my reading, she's mainly, she mainly gets to be like an ongoing character in the Bat comics in Nightwing at a certain point. You know, aside from Birds of Prey and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But there are moments like, uh, like soon you'll go into Zero Hour. We've talked about that. Where she has a pretty big moment. Um, there's one or two moments in the Robin comic. But generally, she is sort of like a supporting character for the general Batman family family of comics. So you'll find yourself just like just kind of like going from, okay, which issue of Detective, which issue of Robin here. And I'm not saying it's going to be bad because those are all good issues, but... It is going to be a lot more than you're used to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've looked at my Excel sheet. Oh, yeah, which I have to send you. But it's just crazy, all this stuff. And it even, you know, I have I know of Bruce Wayne murder and fugitive, all that stuff. I, I know I have to delve into that. So, yeah, I think it'll just be, it'll be very interesting to see how she's used. And I think it'll be tough to see, you know, what I consider covering fully. But, yeah, if she just appears in a panel, which she does in, in these uh, two stories that we do, then. I think I'll just say what she does, and that's about it. But I'm excited. I think this is uh, good. And it's, you know, obviously the show is dedicated to Barbara Gordon and learning about her and, and, and teaching and educating about her. But it's also great for me because, you know, I'm on the Batman universe to broadening my horizons and learning more about Batman. So I'm actually really excited to do that, just to have the opportunity and have the desire to do it as well. So Yes, Padawan. Yes. Yeah, well you brought up Nightfall Part Seven. And so my you wrote in and you uh you were talking about you were addressing the question of continuity in Suicide Squad with Barbara and Batman and did Barbara know his identity? And you said yes. Uh, because of the killing joke. And so then I'm reading Nightfall and I get to part seven and she appears because he calls her up and she obviously knows that Bruce and Batman are the same, like the way I, I can't tell. Now it's ambiguous how he's calling. Is he calling her as Bruce Wayne or is he calling her as Batman? Yeah, it's already like the scene's like in the middle of the call. Already. Yes, uh, but you know, then he ends the call 
Tony says she knows. She knows Alfred. So I wonder what your take on this is because I'm almost wondering, is this in line? Is this particular part in line with John Ostrander's continuity? And maybe at this point of DC publicating history, it was still ambiguous whether or not the killing joke was in continuity. Well, I mean, like, well, that last part, it has to be because she's in the wheelchair. Right. And and like, and her specific point in Nightfall, the scene in Nightfall is that, um, I think she's trying to figure out, Batman's trying to figure out, uh, the destination of like, I'm trying to remember exactly. It was like, it was like, like the, someone, someone had blood and he was analyzing the blood and it was a, it was like a case of malaria from like a certain region. On, oh, right, right. That, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I, I, I've actually been rereading that part, but I'm not going to that part yet. Yeah, it's been a couple of years, but, uh, she's analyzing it for him. Mm-hmm. And then she says, you know, you know, it's tough getting used to the wheelchair. I hope, I hope, you know, you get used to it as well. And Alfred and Bruce are kind of like, Bleh. Yeah. She knows what doesn't Oracle know, Master mm-hmm. Bruce. So it's like she knows more than they expected her to. To me, it's just—I mean, I never think I've never ever read that scene and assumed that she did not know that point that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Now, I, at that point when I first read it, I wasn't aware of the stories where it went back and forth in pre-crisis to where she lost her memory and, right. and that kind of stuff and, and Suicide Squad. But to me, and I, I wrote this in, your, in an email last month, uh, you couldn't hear my voice as I was writing it, but it was loud, that it just, it makes no sense and serves no purpose that she has, does not know who Bruce Wayne or who Batman is at this, t- at this point. Okay. Especially considering the big point for me is that the reason why she's Oracle in Suicide Squad is because John, Ast- John Ostrander and Kim Yale read the comic book where they both address Batman by his real name. Mm-hmm. And I just have a hard time trying to justify that uh, as a way where she wouldn't know who he was. But do you think that this is in the same like line of thinking as Ostrander then? That it was, it's okay to accept that she's not uh, forth with that she knows his identity because here he doesn't know. Uh, well, now he um... knows, I guess. I think well, because before you said that, like that's that's messed up because she should know at that time. But this one's almost in the same in the same area of thinking that he's not sure if she knows or not. But now it's clear that he does or she does. You know, I don't. know. I mean, I don't. Do I think it's the same line? I mean, I, I would hope so. I mean, I don't think that like the writers and editors were that disrespectful to kind of outright contradict yeah. left and right. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, I, I feel like this. Yeah, it just goes to, I mean, the clear problem is all of this stuff with the killing joke. I think that's where our problems lie. But now it's not just killing joke versus John Ostrander's Suicide Squad. It's killing joke versus John Ostrander's Suicide Squad and this as well. So, but maybe I think maybe DC was just in a weird thing where we don't know about the killing joke and how that plays in. I don't know. But I just thought it was interesting when I saw her there. Well, also, like, like, as I'm flipping towards the scene in sort of actual number one, mm-hmm. uh, where, where they're on Skype, they can see her, and, I, and I'm wondering if when it's revealed Skype. that she can. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> Pretty much, I mean, I mean, I'm not, we don't see what she's looking at, but they can see her, so I'm wondering if there's a two-way camera or a one-way camera. Yeah. Could be. I don't know. I think, I think this is important because I, I didn't know until, like, I think last year that there was that big of an inconsistency, and that yeah. really kind of, like, like grates, I don't know, that puts a a burn my saddle or something. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. It's something. I mean, continuity is uh, it's a weird thing, and I don't know if there's ever like a perfect answer. I think everything never lines up. It'd be like a utopia, a utopian continuity, and I guess we'll just 
we're uh, searching for it, but we'll never get it. It's ironic considering Grace number 12 recently released, but uh, okay. that's a story for another time. I know. Sorry I haven't read that yet. I'm reading it tomorrow, and then uh, we can talk about it, and we'll be discussing it, too, on TPU, So, Oh, your article, anyways. I heard you read it. I, I spent a long, I spent pretty much all day right. figuring out where those quotes came from. That was like me trying to figure out all the, remember when I had like all these people, you helped me out trying to find those I remember that. Panels? Yeah, like the yeah. officer down one, yeah. Yeah, so, oh, crazy stuff. I mean, like the last laugh, yeah, crazy stuff. Well, oh, yes. I think that's it, you know, as an intro for you in the 90s. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? No, but you know, like, like because, uh, I know that we come from the same general era of DC enjoyment, but because of my youth and charm, this is why I'm better than Shaq. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess his expertise are the 70s and 80s. So you're just a two. Yeah, you know, like, 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 like the, the, old, the older it is, the less relevant it is, so yeah. take that. Hello! Hello! Who is it? It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guidelwamba. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see. What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice, uh, I told them we already got one. Well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English types. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. What a strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Well, Don's also agreed to stay on for some listener emails, so we'll do that now. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail's here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So, uh, as, from episode 104, we have Ian Clark, and the reason why I'm using his last name is because we have an Ian Miller, so I want to be specific. He says, I'm a new listener, and I've also recently returned to reading comics after a 20-plus year break. I'm enjoying the podcast. I did want to make a point regarding the discussion surrounding whether or not Barbara would take her own life. In the Arkham Knight game, Batman was under the influence of the fear toxin and only hallucinated that Barbara shot herself. So your thoughts about Barbara being able to fight through the fear is still intact. So I talked to you. You've heard these episodes. What do you think? Do you think Barbara as a character, you're just looking at her. Do you think PTSD or not, she would be the type of person that would commit suicide? My thought was that even despite of that, I just feel like she's such a strong character. She wouldn't. 
But what do you think? It is tricky because this is a kind of a real world element, and I don't want to like you don't, you, you, I don't I don't want to what I say I don't want to say it to where I, I I end up sounding not how I intend and offending somebody who knows somebody's gone through it. Right. I actually remember I actually remember being on Crawl Space. This is a secret. Someone asked us something that had to do with suicide and. The panelists elected not to address that question because they thought it was too real world. But hey, we're not on that show anymore. Oh. But I don't. I do not think that Barbara Gordon. I think because, again, by the nature of how I know her, and because that she is the character, the character of Oracle. Barbara Gordon as Oracle is pretty much solid iron, fi- fire iron will uh, personified. Mm-hmm. So it, that in, that in, lends me to believe that she would not be driven to suicide now. I can't. I that's that's always kind of a tricky thing. Like you know, well, this person wouldn't do it because we don't know how people react to things. Grant, right. she's a she's a fictional character, so I think that lends us to say, well, because of the, you know, I think she could have uh, when before she became Oracle when she was first shot. Yeah. I and you know she's you know, as well as I do that she's had her bouts of self esteem issues because of that, but because she's always fought back and and become has become a incredible character because of that. I just don't think that she would do that based on her actions, more so than like that we like the character. Based on her actions, I don't think that she would. Now I know for a fact that uh that scene in the game is a hallucination. She wasn't right, actually right. doing that. But the but in terms of the idea, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, I'm still I'm sort of thinking about like what way or how would I be able to get a good interview with some well, you know, get an interview with someone without I don't know. Like, it, it would be, be tough. tough, right? Because that's a tough thing that, that, you know, veterans may not want to talk about. But I think that'd be super interesting, honestly, to get a real-life person and talk about what it's like for that. I think that'd be interesting. Uh, and then we have from Shag, your favorite person. Oh, yeah. He's going to give a commentary on 104. He's listening there here. So he says, hi, Batgirl to Oracle Podcast. Long-time listener, first-time letter writer. Well, I started listening more often once you added more interesting semi-irregular co-hosts, i.e. him, because he never listened to my show until I invited him on. Yes, that's when I stopped listening. See, you support – that's when you stopped listening. Well, at least you supported me even through the terrible first few episodes. I guess you are better there. I've decided to record my thoughts as I listen to your latest episode, 104, so forgive me if it's a bit stream of consciousness. Thrilled to hear the Batman versus Superman casting of Barbara Gordon. My assumption has been that Barbara will be the new police commissioner. Sadly, I'm guessing no wheelchair. Tom is the special guest? All that build up and anticipation and it's just Tom? That was fun to, and I met him. It's funny because Tom and I were talking with him and we were just there and we were keeping that secret and I kept saying that, my secret co-host. And Shag had no idea, and Tom was going on about it as well. It's funny. Tom came on to defend his honor from me. Tom's honor was impugned years ago when he started banging that Corey Dick drum. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Thanks to Tom for filling in the knowledge gaps on Hawk and Dove and Titans. Need to reread the Suicide Squad issues. While I came to Suicide Squad late, I was reading these as they came out, which, of course, he sent in a letter page that I read. I remember these bright, shiny super friends made a very interesting contrast for the dark, dirty squad. Also, this was the first time in a long time we'd seen these classic JLA members together. The satellite-era JLA was disbanded back in the early 1980s. Since then, we'd had the newbies of Justice League Detroit and funny Justice League International. So for old school fans, this was cool to see these classic heroes banding together again to find out what happened to their friend Ray Palmer. 
Firehawk appears. Hooray! Tom's right. She's hot. Shag is right, in quotes. Quote, Shag is right, end quote. Keep practicing that sentence, Tom. Ooh, I hate the new thinker. Curse that Cliff Carmichael, Ronnie Raymond's teenage nemesis. In some ways, Firestorm is to blame for all the horrible things the new thinker does. Poor Adam Cray. I I appreciate that one. I liked him as a legacy character. Lots of unrealized potential. Yes, Tom. There was a Russian Firestorm back in the late 1980s. With Ostrander writing both Suicide Squad and Firestorm, elements flowed back and forth. Suicide Squad used lots of Firestorm villains while Firestorm took on more international intrigue. So embarrassed about my letter! Repeated those same thoughts about the Justice League above in this letter. Apparently still thinking about that 20 years later. I was complaining about the writer because I felt Grant Morrison's powerful meta ending in Animal Man didn't need to be revisited in a more straightforward superhero comic. The squad appearance was a bit funny but took something away from that fantastic Animal Man ending. Stop debating my age! Ah! Yeah. Don't get hard! Nice chat with Tom. Enjoyed the live in-person atmosphere. Love that No Doubt album. Every song is great. Backroll number 42. As a father myself, the father-daughter fight together sounds really wonderful. I look forward to the day I can battle crime alongside my daughter while I wear an enormous robotic suit. On the edge of my seat... That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a, I think that's a Stars and Stripes uh, reference. Stargirl and Stripes. What? Well, in Backroll 42, remember when they're fighting Livewire? It was, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. But, no, that's also true. That's, yeah, her stepfather. On the edge of my seat waiting for the new Velvet Tiger. Can't wait. Ha, ha, ha. Recognizes Grayson's butt. Ha. See? Babs appreciates folks that are hot, too. <laughs> All the sound clips are hilarious. Batmite's voice gives me a headache. Sorry, Mr. Scheimer. Even as a kid, these cartoons grated on me. The incidental music and sound effects of Filmation are classic, but this cartoon, cartoon series wasn't my favorite. Though the Batmobile was pretty sweet looking in the series. Doesn't the commissioner recognize his own daughter's voice on the phone when she's Batgirl? Face to face, I can understand, but when you are just limited to sound on the phone, it seems he'd recognize her. Oh well, I guess the excuses, cause superheroes. Great episode. Keep up the stellar work. Fly on, Babs, but lovers. The irredeemable shag, fire, and water family of podcasts. Despicable. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? I've never had someone write in to do a commentary. That was kind of fun. Uh, well, I'll write in with ten <laughs> commentaries. Okay. I had no idea this is going to be a contest. Oh, yes. Uh, next up is from Michael Rich. He says, Sally Stella, I just listened to the end of your Suicide Squad coverage. It wasn't a book I read because I'm generally unhappy with books that have villains as the main characters. Oh, I'd be interested to know why. I didn't know that this was where Urko got her start, and I enjoy learning more of her history. There sure was a lot of commentary on Dick Grayson's rear aspect in this episode, <laughs> and I have more for you. I thought you said that you weren't following the Grayson title, so you haven't read this scene that occurred in an early issue of the title. This is rated PG for the joke at the end. I actually have, I did uh, go through this, and I have read all of Grayson, but I will read this nonetheless. So, a Spiral's leader assigns Dick Grayson to teach two sections of acrobatics to the St. Hadrian's girls under the cover identity of a former French Olympian. Oh, and he's gay. Do you remember this ep- uh, this issue of Grayson? I've actually not read Grayson consistently. So. Oh, okay, just this other one. Okay, so at the first meeting of his class, Dick demonstrates some maneuvers. Four of the women are watching him work. Lottie, I have to confess it, I love Jim. Johnny, oh yeah, best subject by far. Lottie, nah, not 
J-G-Y-M, J-I-M. Oh, this is confusing. That's what I named the right cheek. The left one's Juan, and he's a fine one. What? Yeah, Juan, but my heart belongs to Jim. She hates his butt cheeks. Oh. I can see that voice. Poor Juan, though. Oh, he's going to need comforting. Lots and lots of comforting. Johnny. But it's all like a waste, though, right? I mean, he's gay. Lottie. Ah, Johnny, don't you understand? Paris is gay. That doesn't stop me from wanting to climb up on its Eiffel Tower. That is so sleazy. <laughs> Ladies, are you even paying attention? I swear. Good lord. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, the end of his his uh, comments here. We haven't learned much about the tiger in this issue. We don't know her skills and powers and her motivation seems weak. I would have rated this lower than you just because it seems like mostly filler, setting up conflict with Frankie, setting up romance with Luke, etc. Looking forward to a more substantial issue next month, which we'll cover soon. And Tom Panarese wrote in, and I asked him, hey, do you want to comment on whether, you know, Dick's term on the Titans is in continuity with him running around with Batman? And his his answer was simply, yes. (laughs) And that was it. So we're done. That's thank you. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. Uh, remember, you can post comments on TBU, well, the Batman Universe.net, or you can write in Oracle at gmail.com. You can do commentaries if you so desire. It's up to you. And now that that's done, we're actually going to get into two different sets of limited series, I guess we could call them, that happened in the 90s. And uh, this was one of those reasons I wanted Don on. I thought it'd be fun to do this with him. So first we're going to talk about Gotham Knights with an N-I-G-H-T-S. And it's just four issues. And it ran from March through June 1992. Uh, the writer was John Ostrander. The penciler was Mary Mitchell. Inker Bruce Patterson. And colorist Adrian Roy. So Babs, I'm just going to tell you. Babs rolls by in one panel. <laughs> And it's even ambiguous as to whether or not that is Barbara Gordon, because it's a person in a wheelchair. She has glasses and kind of auburn hair, so it, it could be. But really, there's nothing identifying her as Barbara Gordon in written word. So really, I can't, you know, there's only so much you can do to discuss her. So I just thought, you know, as a whole, we talk about this particular story. Now, a lot goes on in the story, and it's all about, it's Batman, and really, it's about the Gotham City and its people. So you've got several characters. You have Rosemary at the donut stand, and she's in love with this Frank, uh, who always seems to come to her, get the same thing, and, and she just wonders why hasn't he professed his love to her. And then she thinks that he's Batman, so that's her storyline. There's the elderly couple, Joel and Emma Mayfield, and Joel is diagnosed with cancer, and he has a short amount of time to live, and he's just very fearful more for his wife, because what will she do? without him and then bruce wayne comes to the rescue there which i thought was a great way to end the the story you have friends on the train jenny and jimmy and they both have issues uh jenny sleeps around a lot and it seems like she just doesn't want to get attached emotionally and jimmy also doesn't want to get attached emotionally but that's because the love of his life was killed by joker gas coming up from the sewer and then the recently released from prison, uh, Dio. And I think that's almost the hardest one to, to read just because there's an abusive relationship between him and his wife. Yeah. And, and he doesn't trust her. And I don't know. I don't know why she puts up with it. But what did you think about, you know, this story as a whole? Was it intriguing to, I mean, Batman was very much in the background to just focus on Gotham citizens. Well, are you aware of the title Spider-Man Tangled Web? I am. 
Have you read any of it? I think I have, though that it would have been a while. Yeah, that was like a ten year. That was like that was around ten years ago. It yeah. kind of because that was more recent, and I've not read this before. It kind of struck me as that kind of t- storytelling where it's about how does Batman or the main hero affect normal people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very interesting approach to telling a story. I don't know if it needed to be four parts. I think that this could have been like one, maybe not an annual, but like one long special. Yeah, like a bigger oversized or something. Yeah, like 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 a double size special, or or maybe or maybe an annual. I think it's it's fine. I don't know if I have much to say about it, but yeah, because I think that John Ostrander is a solid writer. Oh, absolutely. And I think that some character stories I was a bit interested in more so than others. Like, yeah, which uh, ones? Which ones would you say you enjoyed more? Than- I liked. Uh, I thought the one where um, I what scared his names. Uh, the one who thinks that Frank is Batman. Rosemary. Rosemary. I thought that was kind of cool. Like, like that's that's an interesting way to uh, to connect the characters to, right. to Batman. I felt bad for the Mayfields because that's very yeah. real world. Mm-hmm. Dia was a character I just kind of wanted to see. You know, get punched in the face. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But so it was. It was those were kind of cool. But like, I think that like uh. My engagement was was not much beyond it. It wasn't a bad story. I don't want to say that it was, but I guess I was just interested in more and so in Azrael. I'm not sure. But yeah. what, did, what did you think about it? Yeah, no, I would certainly agree because I think there are stories that are really intriguing that are only dealing with those periphery characters. And I think of Frontline, which um, ran alongside Civil War, and it was focused on oh. Erica was the main character, and it was just what were the reporters' lives like while this was going on? And I thought it was amazing. It's one of the only, you know, mini-series, like, tie-ins that I would say is amazing to, because, you know, tie-ins aren't their touch-and-go. But that one was great. Uh, but this one, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say this was touch-and-go as to whether, you know, there were certain parts I think that I enjoyed certain characters and other parts I was just, uh But I agree, Dio was, I didn't like that section. Uh, just because he seemed like the same old, same old. And then all of a sudden he had a change of heart. But yeah, I, I think I really like the Joel and Emma Mayfield because it's just so sad. You see how loving they are towards each other. And then he buys that gun, which goes against all of his principles because the guy on the street, he had turned him in several times. And then he, he buys this gun, you know, potentially for a, a murder-suicide so that they can die together because he just wants to protect her. And then at the end, you see Bruce come through, not as Batman, but as Bruce Wayne, and, and help them out. Yeah, I I don't know if I – it wasn't like a high level of enjoyment. Of course, the only reason I was reading it was because of Barbara and, you know, to see her roll by and then is – that, is, that, is that written down in like uh, in like other uh, areas? That of... it was her, yeah. I mean, at least, yeah. Because it almost looks like she's. Yeah, it could be a guess, though. But it is John Ostrander, so I'm like, well, it wouldn't be a stretch if he wanted to put her in there as like an Easter egg. Yeah, it's funny because we don't. I mean, we see it's possible it's her, but we don't see her actual like face, like her eyes and nose and stuff. So, right, right. It is a very, very like like extremely obscure reference. Yeah. Would you recommend this? I guess is. I, mean, I think yeah. it's it's a well written story. As I'm looking at it now, I do like, like, the dialogue. And I'm, Oscar is a good writer. It just depends on if you're in the mood for this kind of, like, uh, low-key story or not. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I, yeah, I would recommend it. There's nothing really to, for me to... I think the artwork's fairly fairly pedestrian. But I think that there's nothing to for me to not recommend it. So I think it's fine. I don't know if I gave a grade. Did you? I didn't. Yeah. Well, check it out if I you find it. I think that's fine without... Because we were just doing, like, a, a little... 
things. Yeah. Well, how about yours? Yes, uh, this one is a lot more. Well, I mean, we have a lot more of Oracle first and foremost, but this one is actually yeah. fairly, un- almost unseemingly major because this is the introduction right. of Jean Paul Valley, who would who is better known as Azrael, and who eventually becomes the Batman. Although, if you read Nightfall, you'll, you'll check it out. This is the four-part miniseries Sword of Azrael that introduced the character by Denny O'Neill and Joe Casada. Oh boy! Uh, also, Casada uh, and Kevin Nolan both of the art, uh, kind of back and forth on inks. And I'm more to you know generally go through like like the four part story like in thirty seconds. Yeah, that's fine. So essentially, uh, this is the introduction that of the, to the readers and Batman of the Order of Saint Dumas, and they are pretty much I don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but they're basically like you know they go back to the Knights Templar, and they're basically like, these sort of like. They call themselves the Avenging Angels. They're an order that kind of, you know, are, they're kind of vigilantes. It's more by and large. They don't really protect people. They kind of just avenge people and kill their enemies. And they're kind of a, a real dark force of, uh, justice. And this is an order that's been going on for hundreds of years. And, uh, to the point where their most recent Avenging Angel, and I don't remember if we actually learned the guy's, his father's name. I forget. But, uh, he's the most recent Azrael. And he goes to be as, uh, who, Eventually, I know it becomes John Paul's arch enemy, uh, Carlton Leha, who, and, he, and throughout a fight, he gets, uh, uh, hit by, shot by bullets, shot by a gun several times. He crawls, uh, crawls out them, starts a ruckus, which ends up killing some people, and, uh, dies in the room of his son, his blonde haired, uh, graduate student from Gotham University's son, studying computer, uh, technologies. And essentially, that kind of sets up the story to, to, for Batman to investigate, takes him around the world, and learning more about the Order of Saint Dumas and the uh, origins of Azrael, and the, the Azrael, the, the former, the late Azrael's son, is given instructions to meet uh, with his father's old friend Numaz, who essentially uh, informs him of all the information he needs to know about the uh, being Azrael. He gives him an updated costume. He lets him. This is important. He lets him know about the system, which uh, is an, an old hypnotic suggestion that was implanted to him since birth. And although he's not kept in shape, he has an intrinsic mental programming that will snap him into a, a fierce killer uh, at, at the drop of a hat. And this happens a lot during Nightfall. Right. <laughs> so this the story's kind of told in two parts. Batman's doing detective work and tracking tracking down uh, Azrael and Leha. Leha, who's part of the Order of Saint Dumas, kind of goes insane and is, is fighting for uh, as as a uh, spokesperson for the Lord Demon Beasts. Who is uh, Azrael's arch enemy? That's he's a little involved there. Eventually, Batman, who is a hilariously and surprisingly cavalier of the secret identity, gets kidnapped by Leha, and uh, well, he Alfred. It doesn't matter because he's in Europe and nobody knows Bruce Wayne. He says that, and yet immediately afterwards, like he says, "Ah, Bruce Wayne, you're Batman." <laughs> so, it reminds me of uh, Spider-Man when he goes because doesn't he go to Paris too for work? Oh yeah, and yeah. Other, yeah. And even so Batgirl that does that. She goes to Spain and like goes out there. And I'm thinking, oh, a little strange. I just found it. I just found it funny that like Bruce says that. Well, no one knows who I am. But then like immediately someone figures out who he right. is. I thought it was hilarious. Um. So, but he's kidnapped, and Azrael, Nomaz, and Alfred team up to find him and save him because Leha is a bit crazy. And um, essentially, essentially, Azrael is put in a position where he doesn't protect. He just avenges, but he does end up saving Bruce from an explosion. And reveals himself to be. My name is Jean Paul Valley, and that's the impetus of that story. I, I have a little bit more information as to where he goes 
bridging into Nightfall. But uh, essentially, this story is the introduction of Jean-Paul Valley, who is a major player in Nightfall and the 90s Batman books. And this is essentially his origin story and how he comes to know the Batman. So uh, what did you think about this? <laughs> I thought that... Well, I guess I was surprised. I was surprised. This is not what I was expecting because we start off with an Azrael character and I immediately thought, oh, look at John Paul. And then I'm like, um, why is John Paul dead? <laughs> so I was very thrown off by that. And then when he stumbles in, I'm like, who is this kid? It was all a big question mark, but then it sort of started to come together for me. So I thought it was pretty interesting because even knowing, you know, John Paul is, is Asriel, I felt like I was a reader at, at that time, first reading this, you know, and, and who is this? Something that was very intriguing is that that kid is not named until the very end. I thought that that was very interesting. A very yeah, I didn't even notice that until I saw your notes. Yeah, I, I thought that that was very interesting. I think we could certainly try to come up with this, but I mean... He's almost treated like an object, perhaps, or just, I mean, he's a, he's a slave to the system. Basically, his father brainwashes him. So it's like he doesn't have his own identity apart from this particular a group of people. And so, you know, I'm surprised he even related his name at the very end and, and didn't do it beforehand to Alfred. But, and yeah, speaking of Alfred, I love the part that he plays and that he's playing an active role. That was great to see. Overall, I just thought, you know, it was... I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we did this, and I'm glad that I read this prior to Nightfall, or perhaps around the same time. No, I think I did read it before I restarted my reading, which was good, so I got a background. Which that is, is really very funny. good. Yeah. Because I, I, this is actually the first time I've ever read this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've I known about it. I, you know, I've known about Asriel. I think because when I was younger... The, the Order of Saint Dumas, Israel stuff, it kind of bored me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't dig into this till, till for this podcast. And I personally really liked it. Mm-hmm. it. It helps that I already know, cause if nothing else, you are vaguely familiar, cause Israel was in No Man's Land, a little bit. He was, uh, part of the Bat family, like, like, I know when, um, Cassandra Kane gains, gains the role of Batgirl, he's there. Mm-hmm. So you would have at least seen him before vaguely. Okay. I guess you don't remember. <laughs> I, I don't, honestly. So he must not have made a big impression. Now he will. Yeah. He, when I read. I know. I know he has like six different costumes after this. So this this is his traditional costume after he's Batman. But um, but uh, I think going in, you know, knowing Jean Paul, liking the character Jean Paul, it may have spurred on my interest. But I think just generally speaking, this is I really like this story. This is one of the one of the Batman masters, Denny O'Neill, who. He is one of my favorite Batman writers, but but just beyond that, he's like one of the uh, immovable architects of the Batman legacy, and I think that like he writes a very inter- very gripping, action packed story. It's a bit nineties, but it's a very co- I think it's, the story is very very cool. And this is one of those stories that I can kind of see, uh, you know, one, some of the best Batman stories are ones you can kind of see adapted in an animated movie or an animated story. Yeah. So I think that I really, really like that. I like the artwork. I thought this was badass. <laughs> I thought this was awesome. And uh, yeah, I quite, having read it for the first time, I quite enjoyed it myself. Yeah. What do you think about just the, in, this inability to have free will? Oh, with John Paul? And everything. Yeah. What do you think about this? I think, well, it's interesting because like, as we are introduced to the character in this story, uh, and this kind of goes on in a few issues in between this and Nightfall, you know, he's, he's a young guy. He's a graduate student. You know, he has long hair, beetle shirt, and, and brown specks. You know, he's, I don't want to say he's a milksop, but he's just not a, a crime fighter. And in issue four, you see the system enact where he kills several people. And Alfred is like, he's like, oh my god. And it's like, uh, it is sort of a horrible kind of child soldier-esque kind of mental programming, which after this story, 
uh, immediately afterwards in, in Batman 488, I believe, the next scene is, is like, like the opening scene is Batman telling Robin. So what happened in this story was that so he's yeah. giving him the skibby on um on Azrael, and when they get to part about the system, Robin's like, so you're bringing this guy in who's a killer. He's like, yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk him out of that. So his ideal for Azrael, you know, before Nightfall happens, is that he was going to train him and help him get past the mental programming. Now, of course, you know, Bane didn't know about that, so he interrupted all that, which is why uh, what happens with Azrael being coming Batman and how messed up that was happens. But Batman was on the this story kind of precipitates Bruce to put him on the path of, you know, not killing and trying, basically trying to uh, deprogram him from the system. And I think that, like, it was a very, I think on its own is a very cool idea. I, I guess my, my issue was I went from this, you know, to Nightfall, and it seems like at the end of this, it really seems like he freed himself from the system and became an individual, and, you know, in him saying, my name is John Paul, it was almost like a declaration that the system was broke like he broke it he broke through but there's so much residual violence i think there's residual from this because of all of the violence in nightfall and that so i mean do you think there's some sort of disconnect you think oh okay, um or I, I don't know i see what you're saying um no because i think that at the end of the story it's sort of him you know having the whole manifest destiny thing in his concept in his mind mm-hmm. where he says you know my name is jean paul valley i'm more than this mantle but that does in and of itself break three of the system because the system, as you'll read on, it you can't just deprogram from from you know something that's, that was embedded to you as an infant just by recognizing who you are. That it takes a lot more work than that. Yeah. And maybe that's not maybe that's not readily perce- uh, perceptible in this story. And that, that, I think that's a fair criticism. Mm-hmm. But having read all of Nightfall, Nights and Night, Nights Quest, Nights and all that kind of stuff, you see how how tough it is for him to move beyond that. So I don't have a problem with it, but I get where you're coming from seeing that, like, you know, well, it seems like he's okay now, but he's not later on. Uh, and I think, I think that's just sort of like they're, the writers expanding on the concept of the system. Do you, how much time do you think passed between the end of this and, you know, when he reappears, I guess, in Gotham City, because he looks so young in this, which was another reason why I had trouble, like, figuring out that that was John Paul. He looks like a teenager, and then he looks really much like a grown man, even though he says, I'm a man, at the end of this story. But he looks so, and also his training, which our little dwarf fellow said that he was going to have to undergo training. So what happened in between this and getting over there to to Gotham? Well, what happens is that when... um Bruce, uh, this is, you know, in Batman 488, Bruce tells Tim, you know, you know, while I'm, you know, trying to rest, but I'm not really because I'm, I'm in horrible shape before nightfall, mm-hmm. you're going to train, uh, Azrael our ways. And like 488 is pretty much r- Tim training Azrael. He gives him another costume. He, t- he gives him, you know, a grappling hook and all this kind of stuff. He says, we don't kill. And he takes him out, you know, to kind of, you know, train him and train him how to swing and break into doors and stuff. And they get in a fight with like, at a biker gang and the system pops up. And because they disarmed them, uh, Azrael just barely stopped killing anybody, and that kind of freaks Tim out. But the idea, and this kind of start, you kind of see that at the beginning of Nightfall, that Tim is trying to train, uh, Jean Paul. In fact, uh, a major thing that happens before Nightfall starts is that Killer Croc is on the loose. Bruce is, you know, in horrible shape, so Tim has Jean Paul dress up as Batman just, just to fight Killer Croc. And he still is at the long hair, uh, glasses kind of look. 
And Killer Croc gives him a really tough time, and then Bane kind of like, takes one look at him and kind of just walks away. And that really shakes John Paul up. So at the very beginning of Nightfall, when they break out, when Bane destroys Arkham and all the inmates are run loose, you see Robin giving him a haircut. And uh, he says, yeah, I'm wearing, uh, cut the, cut, get the hair out of the way. I'm wearing contacts now. I need to get tough. So at the very beginning of Nightfall, he's already in, in his mind trying to get tougher, trying to train, trying to get, become a better crime fighter. So there is, and I, I don't blame you for this because this is not collected in the, in the in the collections. But there are at least two issues where he is sort of like in this kind of nice guy phase, and the, he kind of transitions out of that at the start of Nightfall. But there are instances of him transitioning from where he is now to where he uh, ends up. That's that's helpful, especially if, if people uh, <laughs> people don't know too much about him. I guess the last thing we should talk about, unless there's something else, is... Uh, oh, well, actually, before I talk about Babs, because, you know, this is her show. What do you think about the narration style that sort of switches switches between people depending on who is on page? This was something that uh, consciously made me slow down because, you know, I had to figure out who was talking in the little boxes, whereas it's not a consistent third-person narrator. What do you yeah. think about this? It, I don't want to say it threw me off at first, but it did make me try to, like, figure out whose narration boxes right. and whose speech bubbles are who, you know. Because I mean, one thing I noticed is that, like, for some reason, Batman's, whether he's Bruce Wayne or Batman, his box, his, his word balloons are squares. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but everyone else's are typically normal. But yeah, it's, it does switch from third person narration to, I think, Bruce's in a monologue when he's doing detective mm-hmm. work. And, um, even Alfred has some, I believe. I think, to be honest, I think they probably could have done a better job yeah. of that to make it a bit. You remember in Identity Crisis when they're all color coded? Yes. yes. And when they, when, when, yeah, when, yeah, like when they, when you first hear someone's thoughts, they would have their insignia, right. and it was color coded, and then you just kind of go on with that color. I think that like that. That was the first time I ever seeing that kind of differentiation between someone's inner monologue and someone's inner thoughts. And I think I guess at 1993 they weren't at that point yeah. of thinking yet, mm-hmm. so it could have been done better. But at the same time. um I think it could have been done better, absolutely, but it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't take too many points off of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, yeah, so the last thing is just Oracle's appearance. Oh, yeah! She is here, is she? She is. What, what do I think about it, or do you want to talk about <laughs> sure, it? Sure, well, how um, we just purchase? to give the setup, you've got Alfred giving the back the, the backstory of her. It's here's narration that talks about her and, and how she became Oracle. Yeah, she's just given some history about basically the Order and how it started off as part of the uh, Knights Templar. So, I mean, there's nothing I think that we really need to delve into, but it just goes to show you that... This is absolutely like like a, a typical Oracle scene for the Yeah, 90s. that she's got the information. Of course she knows what's going on, and, and she's in the background helping... Bruce and Alfred. So she is, I mean, this is information brokering at its best, basically. This, yeah, th- like, like, you'll see a ton of this, and this is before she cuts her hair, because I know <laughs> for a long time she'll still have, like, not, I won't say yeah. short hair, but her hair is, like, shoulder Oh, length. right, yeah, like, what, uh, I mean, basically a bob, because that's what she has in No Man's Land. Right. Yeah. yeah, I was I was rereading, like, No Man's Land, like, her, her appearance as a Nightwing, and her, I remember her hair was shoulder length, where it's, like, here, it's, like, basically Batgirl unmasked. But this is absolutely, like, this is your typical... Oracle scene where Batman. And I remember, like, I don't know if you know this, but like, um, I do remember after a while, people were kind of criticizing the Batman comics for having him rely on Oracle too much and not doing the de- detective work himself. And I personally never thought it got that point where, to, where Batman was just being lazy and relying mm-hmm. on Barbara. I always thought that, like, I mean, here you see him do the detective work, and he utilizes her to figure out things fast that he that he either doesn't have time to or he doesn't have the resources to figure out. Like, what he can't do, she yeah. can. 
is, and I think that this is a, a very good illustration of that, to where I don't think that it makes either character lesser of a, lesser of a detective. No, I mean, I, I really like it. I like the fact that, like, this is a very kind of, like, singular Batman story. There's very little of the Batman archetypes because he travels and stuff. But, you know, besides Gordon in one scene and Alfred, I do like Oracle's inclusion here because she, it, to me, it shows you how important she is. Yeah. And uh, this is, this is, I'm not saying this is exactly what I want to see from her, but this is one of the elements that I really liked when I was a kid. Oh, you know, she used to be Batgirl, but now, you know, she knows everything. Mm-hmm. That was really cool to me. Yeah, and I think if, if you want Batman to rely, or not rely on, but include other people and not just rely on himself and not go crazy, this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see it as him being lazy. I think it's him as being more inclusive into his little family and actually asking for help if he needs it. And I think that's a big stride in his character because he would just rely on himself. So I think that's good. Do you think it's fair to give a grade or, or should we just sort oh, it's of up do to the you. same thing with Gotham Knight? I'm fine with not giving a grade because I, I didn't. I would, I would go the comic book film review plug uh, way and, oh, just, okay. and just recommend it. Recommend, yeah. I would also recommend it, and, and I think that it would be good to read it if you're planning on doing Nightfall. This is a big Nightfall episode for some reason. Then I would, Hell yeah! <laughs> that I would recommend reading this just to get give you an idea of where Azrael came from. And I know that, like, um, I, I've not gotten the, the, re, the redistributed uh, uh, editions of Nightfall because I've already had the comics, but... I don't know if they start off because I, I was texting you that like the 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 descent of Batman's physical uh, state is like six months before uh, Arkham is destroyed, and that should probably be in the newest edition starts off because that includes the issue right after sort of Azrael where Robin meets Azrael and Azrael is training and he runs into Killer Croc and Bane, which the, the, which are heavily referenced in that, in well, part that's one. That's not in my edition. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that like that. Those really ought to be there now. So, um, uh, you know, hopefully go with your back as you've been and find Batman number 48 through 490 before you read Nightfall. Well, that's it for the vintage things that we're going to do. It's funny now, vintage is in the 90s, where it's also <laughs> 60s. It was always going to end this way. I know, right? Uh, when I come back, or, oh, sorry. When we come back, we're <laughs> going to review, <laughs> so sorry. Uh, we're going to review Batgirl 44 and Gotham Academy number 10. But first, we have Zias's Radio Hour, and it's featuring, would you believe, a Justin Bieber song. Would you believe? What do you mean? What do you mean?
What do you mean? Said you're running out of time. What do you mean? Oh, 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 what do you mean? Better make up your mind. What do you mean? Y'all for protective when I'm leaving. Trying to compromise, but I can't win. You want to make a point, but you keep preaching. You had me from the start, won't let this end First you wanna go to the left, then you wanna turn right Wanna argue all day, make a love all night First you up, then you down, and in between Oh, I really wanna know, what do you mean? We are now in 2015, 25 years <laughs> later. It's not really that long. Yeah, so now we've got Backrow 44 and Gotham Academy number 10. So I'm super pumped about this just because I've not had. And you know what? My goodness, Donovan. This is like kismet to have you on because of the bike scene and the bike. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. This is perfect. Cause my jaw dropped when I saw that. Crazy stuff. Uh, so Don is in charge of Backrow 44, and then I will do Gotham Academy number 10. So please, my my host, talk oh, yes. about Backrow 44. My lady. <laughs> Backgirl number 44, An Ambush of Tigers. Story by Cameron Seward and Brendan Fletcher. Artist by Ben Gall. Colors by Sergei Lapointe. Letters by Steve Wands. Babs to the cover. Um, so this picks up where 43 left off with... Uh, Alicia's fiance Joe being captured by the Velvet Tiger, so Batgirl is on the case, uh, and I, I imagine she's tracking via uh, the GPS in her, uh, Joe's phone with her new tricked-out Bat Cycle, and so she ends up basically at a warehouse where I, I believe the uh, Tigers are mm-hmm. that Joe was that Joe was captured. She runs into the Velvet Tiger and her smashing new dress, darling, <laughs> and her and her new shoes, which which look very uh, I've seen those shoes before in real life, but they also look very like kind of like Romanesque yeah, gladiator. Yeah. With with a black toenail paint, interesting. Anyways, so I'm, I'm reading too much of this comic already. <laughs> so a fight ensues. At one point, Velvet Tiger pops out this sort of like EMP style gadget that makes Batgirl's utility boat explode, mm-hmm. and she gets away. So uh, in one of the mini scenes where somebody has a kind of freaked out looking face at Fox Tech, we see Kadir running some sort of like diagnostic on a package that Batgirl's partner sent her, mm-hmm. codenamed Delphi. Which uh, <laughs> has Batgirl going, shut up. Basically, uh, information that Frankie uh, promised to give him. And then at that point, Luke Fox shows up and uh, asks what happened to Batgirl. Because she, she came to Kadir to help fix her utility belt and have, have, her, have him analyze what exactly made everything explode. 
Now, I am not kidding when I when I when I ask, can you help me out with what exactly they are figuring out in terms of Velvet Tiger's plan? Because this legitimately confused me. Her plan? Yeah, like, like they're running down. Ah, it seems that like uh, she's been hiring freelancers to do this and that. And even when I wrote my review, I had a very hard time trying to figure out what was going on. Can you? I hope this isn't pissing you off. But can can you help me with this? No, I'm not upset at all. Are, are, are you aware of what was what she was trying to do? I know it involved the people who were being killed in the last issue and the, and the tigers, but it had something to do with like some and sort I think of like those freelance those people that were killed were also the freelancers that she hired. So I think they did what they had to do, and then she got rid of them. And she framed them too. Like I, I have a point about that, to be honest. Which, but, uh, well, she that's what she used Jeremy for because Jeremy got their biometrics, and so so for right. example, Jeremy scanned Kadir, and with Kadir, who was recently hired at Fox Tech, he was able to she, I guess, was able to get into Fox Tech and do what she's doing. I don't know if that- it's completely clear what else, what she's doing, except for she's writing code on some stuff, and she clearly has a grudge because Gilcom was nixed, like. She lost. She's the CEO. Yeah, well, the company's down now, though. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Lonnie Gilbert. And that was, is, that, is that the character's name from Pre-Crisis? It is. <laughs> and she doesn't seem to be 10 years old, so. Yeah. So that happens. We cut to uh, Jeremy DeGroote's apartment, and Babs is holding sunglasses, which, again, I don't know why, but she's basically uh, confronting Jeremy about his connection to Velvet Tiger. And he says that she basically bullied him into uh, Those getting... Those are the... That's what she used. Those were the glasses he used to scan the biometrics. Oh! Yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I promise I was paying attention. I just, that, that it completely... Well, that's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a hard one to... I assume that it's like corporate as sabotage. Like, she's trying to destroy other companies. So, good can move again. That's what I assume, but I don't think this is over, so I, hopefully 45 will answer our questions. Okie dokie. Essentially, Lola Tiger bullied her ex, Jeremy, into doing this because he says, you know, she always gets in, flies in a rage if someone doesn't obey her, so she's a very overbearing kind of gal. And he tells Batgirl that her family has a uh, a home near the edge of Gotham, near the water. Basically telling where, where exactly that is. So Batgirl leaves and says, you need to turn yourself in and, you know, accept responsibility. With a very uh, kind of distraught look on her face. Uh, we see Alicia parked outside of that very home, trying to call Joe again before Batgirl spooks her out. You know, weird face count too. And um, Batgirl tells her to wait while she saves Joe. So we cut inside the house. We see Joe in a very, like, 60s Batman style kind of death trap, tied to the ceiling uh, from her wrists over these two tigers as Velvet Tiger is mwahahaing right in front of her, saying, Oh, I feel betrayed, 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 my Joe. You know what, what, I, what I expect from all my employees? Loyalty. And my tigers hate betrayal, or they love the taste of betrayal, and they're going to enjoy you. It sounds like fish. Fish has <laughs> all of a sudden, Fish Mooney has come onto my podcast. I was doing Uma Thurman, but they're all the same character. Oh, okay. <laughs> as I told Lady Freeze when I pulled her plug. This is a one-woman show. I don't think so. Uh, so many people that kill so little time. There you go. And at that point, uh, Batgirl crashes through the window very high up uh, with it, what, what looks to be an extreme, an extreme of bow staff, but yeah. it's not really. In Drake style. Yeah, I thought about that. I should say that like uh, Velvet Tiger has been making fun of Joe from this very high like the life dis- like lifeguard that. chair. Yeah, yep. Uh, so Batgirl throws her over and 
she reaches out and grabs uh, Joe as she's hanging. So they're both suspended over the air while Batgirl contends with the two tigers. The staff is revealed to be a very long blow stick, so she fires blow darts into the tigers so they fall asleep. Velvet Tiger says this very cliche line, Now my babies! And then she starts fighting Batgirl. Batgirl makes a weird face, weird face count three. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to the two of them, Alicia comes down uh, from the ceiling with the cable, rescues Joe, and while she gives the clear to Batgirl, Velvet Tiger fires these things at her, which scratches her up. Batgirl says, okay, that's it, and basically uh, resolves to kick her butt. But Velvet Tiger has one more ace up her sleeve and fires a tranquilizer dart into her leg and is about to chop her up. And then... <laughs> the, you hear, not so fast, Tiger, and you see the Batgirl cycle crash from the the glass roof onto Velvet Tiger's head, which I think would have killed her. <laughs> Clocks her in the back of the skull. Batgirl says what I said, the hell. The Batgirl cycle talks and says, Batgirl, focus on my voice. Listen to me. I'll get you to safety. Climb aboard. And Batgirl's like, yeah, whatever. I'm saying anything. So she kind of falls asleep on top, on her bike as her bike drives her away and talks to, and, you know, talks her to sleep. Just as the cops arrive to arrest Velvet Tiger. So the next day at this, uh, Starbucks ripoff, Ketoptera? Chiroptera, which is the... Oh, yeah, I, I knew that. I just didn't know how to pronounce it. And there's a girl with the Sailor Moon. Oh, cool. Back, yeah, I'm just not noticing that. So, um, she's meeting up with Luke Fox, uh, telling him how about her her night. And he says, oh, man, I wish I was there. And she says, um, oh, office life not thrilling enough? Must be missing your power armor, tough guy? And I'll, I have a couple questions about that. Uh, she says, oh, can you hire... Can Luke, uh, can Fox Tech hire my friend Frankie? She's really smart. He says, well, we offered her a job, but she turned us down. She said she was in the middle of a career change, but I don't know what that meant. Barbara's really exasperated by this point and says, you know, she wants to be a hero, but I don't want to take on any sidekicks. I mean, <laughs> half of Batman's die every day. He's trying to, he says, well, give her a chance, but she says, no, absolutely not. All right, fine. Batgirl works alone. No, let's not move on to another subject. What about Barbara? Does she have plans for a sidekick? And she, and then Barbara makes a face and says, mm, are you applying? You bet I am. And they go, blah, 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 blah. You never close your eyes anymore. Your lips. There's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it. You lost and Yeah, they, 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 I have a big point about that. And then, uh, yeah. after they French, she says, so I, I, I know our only first Whoa. kiss was two seconds ago, and this might be going light speed, but, do you want to go to a wedding? And then, um, for the sake of Josh, I'll say that, uh, Alistair Smythe says, a wedding? And then the issue ends with, uh, Frankie controlling several instruments and vehicles, including the Batgirl cycle, and we see this sort of like nanotech device on the back of her, on the base of her, uh, skull. Dr. Octopus style. Indeed so. And she's speaking electronically without opening her mouth. And she says, this is going to be awesome. And she looks evil. <laughs> Next, dearly beloved. And, you know, you think that because she was kidnapped and forced to do these things, that she would have learned from the digital babs situation. 
Because this is like practically the same thing. That it is. St- stupid woman. <laughs> I hate to say this. I did not like this issue. And you're silent. Don't worry. It's, it's not that big of a deal. But like, uh. No, I'm still trying to figure out my thoughts on it, honestly. Uh, cause I kind of, I kind of made a, made a face, uh, when I saw your notes and saw your grades. Like, oh, I'm not sure about the nine. <laughs> Spoilers. No, I, 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 hate, I really do hate to say this because I, I love this comic book. I didn't do this issue. I think that the writing was rushed and it just wasn't as sharp and snappy as it traditionally tends to and I don't know if that's because it reads differently because of the art change or because that's just the way that the, that the script comes out but the, the the story wasn't grooving for me it is confusing as hell I, I'm not kidding I'm not trying to be funny I honestly could not figure out what was going on and I, I, and I really liked the last issue I could follow the last issue fine but that scene with Kadir, Luke, and Batgirl, when they're figuring out, like, you know, the coding and, you know, like, like, uh, Lonnie's involvement, I honestly read that, like, two or three times and just could not make heads or tails of it. And I realized it didn't matter for my review, but I just don't know what's going on. <laughs> I have an idea, but, like, it's, it's, it's extremely convoluted. I think that Velvet Tiger, I was kind of let down by her as a character because she's, she's awfully one-dimensional. And I don't have a great deal of affection for her or memory of her from pre-crisis. I have read her first story, but I don't really remember what she was like. But she was kind of like this sort of like toting 60s Batman villain in not a really good way. Not not a charming way, kind of an annoying way because there wasn't a lot of character to her. And I would have liked to see her outside of her supervillain identity because, I, I don't know, I, I found her kind of annoying. <laughs> and I, I have... I have I, ironically for me, I actually... Because I know that you typically be a lot more... Are, are, tend to be harsher on this than I tend to be. But I, I'm not really loving the idea of uh, Barbara and Luke together for a couple of reasons that I'll get into. But honestly, overall, I was not a fan of this issue, and I'm very interested to talk that out with you. Mm-hmm. I think that, that part of the reason why it was confusing is that there are so many cooks in the kitchen working on this case. And it's like they want to, you know, put all these tech geniuses together. You almost want it to be, could Babs and Frankie have figured this out on their own and also developed their yeah. their partnership without including Kadir and... Yeah, this, 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 how, how many people are tech geniuses in this comic book? So many now. I mean, first it was Kadir, and I thought that was good because he's playing oh, yes. role Q. And so she's going to come to him when she needs him. But then all of a sudden, you know, he got this new job and he was implicated and then Luke is, you know, involved. There are just a lot of characters that were thrown at us, I think, um, which may be... And also, and I hate to say this, I wasn't crazy about the artwork and I generally love Bengal. I agree. There. I, like, I yeah. love Bengal. I don't think Bengal's actually a woman. I couldn't tell uh, beforehand. And I, I did some research like I didn't know, but... uh that that um that annual and well first that um that end game issue that silent issue that artwork for me carried the story I love that artwork and I loved her artwork on uh the annual here I think it's just rush or whatever because I'm seeing I'm seeing too many people pull those wacky faces um Luke Fox kind of looks old to me yeah I know he was a little fine Babs hard drew him but I don't know it's just it's not up because Bing Bengal I I was I was uh, championing. Her to be the main background artist should I'm not tired of Babstar, but should Babstar ever need to fill in or step down? I think Bengal will be great. This issue I think was just an unfortunate letdown compared to her previous work because it's just not as sharp or dynamic as it as it, as it has been. I mean I don't think this issue is like god awful, but it's 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 a 
legitimate letdown, in my opinion. Yeah, you're right about, you know, Velvet Tiger, that she's one-dimensional. But she was one-dimensional way back when. <laughs> so th- this is, it's unfortunate just because, you know, we're in this modern era, so can we make her three-dimensional? <laughs> um, and and you also want it to be more clear as to what her motives are. And, and I'm just assuming that it's because her company failed that she's doing some corporate sabotage and, and she's using it. But you're absolutely correct that it's not. I mean, I read this two times. I read this issue two times. And, you know, I'll probably read it a third time. But it's hard, honestly, to to figure out what's going on. And the second time, at least, I was able to – well, her her time powers. Her time powers are involved somehow. And you see this, number one, with her comment. She says, you know, she knows a thing or two about what makes tech tick. So there's another tech genius. Slip between the picoseconds of those little eternal – internal chronometers and all <laughs> what and then even with you know Kadir when he's looking at this and that he said you know this is where the internal clock is messed up beyond belief as far as this foam bomb is concerned your velvet tiger rewrote time and this was one of her powers that she could slip through time she could stop it and and create this time portal and, and live there so I don't know but nothing's really explained about her so you know the the reader or the the commenter wrote in and, and emailed me and said you know that I, I was more gracious I guess in her introduction, but that's just because she was so in the background. She only made her appearance the last page, and I thought it was great to set up that mystery and then have her appear. But here, it's like kind of a an unclear mystery, and then you know she's alongside with this as well. And and I'm not sure about Batgirl herself because I feel like Velvet Tiger is not the best fighter unless she is using her time powers to slip through and, and knock someone out and everything. But Batgirl seems to. It seems to take her a little while to, you know, knock her down. And then she gets hit by the very tranquilizer dart that she shot at the um, tiger, which, by the way, I think if you're shooting something through, like, a six-long pipe, I don't think you'd have enough breath power to get it through. The yeah. shorter, the better for those. But, no, there's just a lot of weird stuff going on, honestly. And so many heroes, too. You've got Batgirl. You've got Alicia. You've got Frankie. The, just so many. Well, Frankie, 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 Frankie's only on the last page, right? Right. But I, I mean, is this a backroll book or is this like a team backroll book? There's just a lot going on. Too many cooks in the kitchen is what I'm thinking with this one. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's just a combination of. I think they, I think they, they made the Velvet Tiger plot legitimately convoluted. Yeah. They just did not need to make that as confusing as it was. Um, and, and like you say, it involves too many tech geniuses. Not all of us, you know, took code in college, so I don't know what they're talking about. And I don't need to know what they're talking about necessarily, but th- th- that scene almost makes you want to be interested in, like, what they're talking about, and I can't bring myself to be so because it's three computer geniuses just kind of, like, you know, rambling. <laughs> and it's, it's a kind of, like, cliched, you know, everyone has that scene in a movie where, like, they're trying to access a code, and it's not all that interesting as, as the filmmaker wants you to be, wants it to be, so... That kind of looks, like in terms of the, that her plot kind of lost me, but this issue I think yeah. has uh, other problems just as a side to her. Like, I could almost take or leave that plot, but that's sort of in addition to other other stuff. Well, I mean, you want to be invested in the villain. I mean, I think we came off of a really great storyline with Livewire in two issues, and we've got two issues of Velvet Tiger, and I feel like I'll be really disappointed if it's not done because I think it needs a better wrap up. But the police who are coming. But it, it just didn't hold up as well as Livewire did. Yeah, I think that, like, I, if this was not the end of the story and we had another issue, or if this issue was different in that, like, 
Okay, she figures out that she's Lonnie Gilbert, but we see Lonnie Gilbert, you know, talking to Jeremy or whatever. We know more about the character. I think that would have benefited from me, from my... That would have benefited how I would come, off, come across liking her. I mean, she's the kind of villain that just, like, like likes what she's doing, where she's always smiling. Yeah. And that can, be, that can be charming, but because I think the plot, her plot is dumb, it comes off as annoying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as for your Luke and Babs thing, you know, as everyone knows, I'm a shipper. Everyone knows that. I didn't like it, and it's not because I'm a Dick and Baz fan. That's not at all the issue. It's because it seemed to go on so quickly. I mean, they were flirting in the previous issue, and then all of a sudden he's, like, making a play, and it's not even let's go out on a date. It's like, let's make out here in this coffee house. Okay, how much of Luke Fox Fox have you read? Did you read his Batgirls, Batwing series? Yeah, yeah, because I was on the show with you when we were doing Batwing. Well, I, I, I was gone when da- David Zim, 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 that guy, was still Batwing. Uh, and I, you're, I, right, I, you're right. So no, no, I haven't. But I did read him in Eternal. So does he know who the Bat family are? Yeah. That's my first question. He knows who Batgirl is. So yeah. he does. Okay, that's that's fair. That's fair game. Has has he and Batgirl have a flirty relationship before? No. See, that's, that's one of my... I have, I have a larger point to this, but my, my, one of my big problems is that, like, in the last issue, he first appears in this title, and the way that I reread that scene, and the way that scene plays, yeah, there is some, there, you can definitely get a slight romantic tension between the two of them when she holds his hand and says, you know, I've always liked this aspect about you, then Kadir does a whole oh, yeah, face, but that's his first appearance in this story, and, it's all, and to me, it's also in line of her flirting with everybody. And this this one, I don't see what's different about him than it, than, than everybody else in the book that she's had romantic tension with, and they're, they're, the way they're talking is though like this has been an ongoing thing, and it's just completely rushed. I, like I, I don't see what's different about Luke Fox than that's different from I guess you know until this issue Jeremy or Kadir or the cop guy. Like what about him? Yeah. is on a aside from him being Batwing. And I don't, I don't even, I mean, the way they reference it, is he still Batwing, or did he give that up? He is, but he's not really, he's not really doing it as much. Okay. Know. I, 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 I think... think he's focusing on his company. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it, the main problem for that one, uh, at least immediately, is that I think it was, it was rushed ridiculously, but uh, I have a larger point to that, but I'll, I think I'll save that for the okay. end. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the last Bat Family person she flirted with, which I thought was an intriguing idea, was Jason. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, I remember that. I mean, honestly, if I you read Eternal, like, you would, I think you would maybe enjoy it as well. And it's mainly because she was just in this really awful place because, you know, her father was arrested. And he was the one to talk her off the ledge, figuratively and literally. And they went on, you know, a mission together and everything, and it seems like it was a good relationship, but of course he, he was about to call her and then he didn't, so that's, you know, how that goes. Is that, yeah, I don't know if, if traditionally Barbara Gordon and just out of have hardly ever interacted, besides that those two yeah, Gotham Knights so issues. Yeah. I, I'm bummed because it seems like all of the uh, the romances that she has, I, I guess I shouldn't say all, but the romances that she has, the guys turn out to be like jerks in some way or another. You know, I mean, yeah. Liam, and then Jeremy all of a sudden, you know, his history is revealed, and I was sort of questioning him, sudden. and he's not such a great guy, because he plagiarized, right? So, his ex-girlfriend was blackmailing him. Well, where, where did that come from? Like, all of a sudden, he's a guy that, like, I, one of my complaints about that is that, like, we've not seen enough of him as we I have know. other that, supporting right, characters. So, we're building history, and now it's, like, super negative, because now, I mean, I like this guy, and now suddenly I'm like, oh, well, he's not as good as I thought. 
So that's super, it's just a bummer. Let's talk about Frankie. What are your thoughts sure. on Frankie in the previous issue going behind Batgirl's back? Um, I thought that was, that was kind of funny how insanely dangerous that was. The only, the, the main thing for me, cause I think Batgirl is like kind of, kind of being a bit, I shouldn't say unrealistic because like, you know, she's proven that anybody can be a crime fighter. <laughs> not that, not that saying that it's like, like Babs is a run of a mill character, but like, she's not, she, you know, she's, she's, she's psychologically different than the Bat family in that aspect. So, if Frankie had, you know, had the full capability, she could become a crime fighter herself. The main thing is that, like, she legitimately has a physical disability that prevents her from being, uh, completely, it's like, uh, going back to CBFR, like, like, uh, a f- the guy who was deformed in 300. Right. You know, where, like, he legitimately, because of his deformity, it honestly prevents him from operating at, at full capacity to be a, an, an effective fighter. And Frankie's, like, disability where she needs a cru- walking crutch, that prevents her from being a crime fighter as well. So that's, like, the only thing that I can see Barb's are having her say, you can't do this with me. Otherwise, I, w- I wouldn't see that to be that big of a deal. But her going behind her back, to me, is like, okay, she's being set up for a, a big setback. And I don't think they'll kill her, but there, I, I can see, like, something bad's going to happen. I, I should think so, too. I just feel my problem is, what are you doing? Like, did you not learn your lesson? And you've got something hooked into you. And now it's on the outside, but that's basically what Barbara Gordon had. It was hooked into her spine, and it was all tech. And I'm just thinking, this is dangerous. It is dangerous. And is this a way for Digibabs to come back? Who knows? But <laughs> Digibabs, like digital that. monster, Digibabs. <laughs> um, remember that foot fetish fanfic we did of Digimon? But, uh, yeah, I, I have a problem with her going behind Barbara's back, which Barbara, you know, brings up that point as well, so I'm glad that she and I are on the same page. Um, it's kind of like her Barbara's Jason Todd in that aspect. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you think that this is, do you, do you disagree with Barbara then? Well, I think... Should, should she give her a chance, or should any partner, if she had full, because I'm, I'm wondering if Frankie was fully capable, would Barbara allow it? What do you think about that? Well, the way Barbara's talking to... Luke, she's not actually bringing up the fact that, that Frankie has a disability. Right. So Barbara's like, no, no partners. I can never have a partner. I think that's kind of hypocritical considering that like, I don't know, like, like, like I don't see why, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but what makes Barbara so special compared to like somebody who just wants to help? That's, yeah. that's essentially why she came back girl. But at the same time, that is what, in my opinion, keeps Frankie from earning the right to put on a costume. And, Looking at looking at the plain facts, that's that's my reason. And I don't know if Barbara's approaching that way. I think if she if she's not, she really should because that kind of makes her to be a jerk. But because I remember you, you, um, I remember when we talked about Batgirl Year One on TBU specials, 
you were not happy with Ed and I for like you know Batman's being so paranoid over Batgirl and taking mm-hmm. off her mask and stuff because you thought that she had the right to do what she, what she wanted. And I think that like this is sort of a, a similar situation. But mm-hmm. the fact remains is Frankie isn't as physically capable uh, as Barbara is, and that prevents her from being a crime fighter. And I think that Frankie is should be smart enough to recognize that she's just too ambitious. But I think that also Barbara's attitude could be a bit more ingratiating. In terms of like sitting her down and talking to her, rather than just saying no because I'm Batman, I mean Batgirl. So it's kind of that, kind of that scenario. Yeah, I don't do you, know. So do you think that like, what's your view? Like, like do you th- do we agree with me that because of her uh, physical uh, incapabilities? Yes, yes, I believe that is the reason why. And even when she, I thought it was dangerous that she's going off and investigating on her own because of, you know, because of that. If um, it wasn't for that, would you care if Batgirl had a sidekick? If she had a sidekick, I don't think so. If Frankie was like in that in that kind of mass she was in last issue, and she could walk fine, would you think that that would be a good idea or a bad idea? I think it'd be fine. Get where you know Barbara's coming from that it's dangerous. I mean, you're absolutely right that I mean, how can Barbara say no? But you know, Batman, Batman takes on his partners. I, I guess it just feels weird for Barbara to have a uh, a sidekick. That would be weird <laughs> for me, um, unless it's you know I, I like the sort of the Oracle and then Oracle's sort of mission buddy. I like that form, and, and that's what, you know, I thought yeah, we were going to stick with. But now Frankie is not happy with that relationship. And I'm wondering if she's going to create a suit or something that she can go out and, you know, fight, kind of like Birds of Prey, where uh, Barbara does that. Oh, in the, uh, in the TV show. But, yeah, oh. I don't know. <laughs> I think that... Just with the personality that Frankie has shown thus far, I, I she could be a dangerous partner to have. Look what she did with Livewire, just going out without thinking about it and getting burned. So I think there may be better partners for her to have. I mean, her and Dinah, I mean, I was completely fine with that. I, I think, think Kadir is, is more trustworthy than uh, Frankie's proving to be at this point. Yeah, but would you have him in a suit and going out? No, know? not at all. <laughs> because at no point has he shown himself to be physically adept. Yeah. But neither is Frankie. Yeah. So it, it is a bit of a disappointment. And I'm hoping that the Velvet Tiger is not over because I think that it was left in a strange, in a strange spot. But certainly not a highlight of the, uh, of the run so far. So, uh, oh, what was the last thing that you wanted to talk about? And then we'll give our grades. Yeah. I, I did have one last point, but did you want to talk about, I think as I saw in your notes, Joe and Alicia at all? Did I? Put that? Uh, oh no, you don't. Never mind. I, I didn't. Did. I mean, we can if you want to bring up. Uh, you know, I talked about. Are you still mad at them? <laughs> Am I still mad at them? Well, they're fine right now. You know, that's funny you brought it up because I uh, I was wrong. I thought maybe they were going to kill Joe off and Alicia was going to become a, a vigilante, but it did not work. Or I'm sorry, it did not happen. Uh, Alicia kind of does some vigilanteism and, and and rescues her. Hey, that worked out as a sidekick, but I don't know if I could take. Um, Alicia has that. Uh, no, it's fine. I think, you know, I'm hoping we get to see more Joe screen time if they really want us to be tested in the character and not as a damsel in distress or doing activism. Do you have a, did you hear my comments about her, you know, who's bringing home the bacon? Her activism is all she's doing. Who's, who's making the money in the household? That's what I want to know. Well, I mean, like, I, 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 <laughs> Stella. Well, I mean, like, I listened to, to your episode last time, and like, it was I was laughing because, like, I think that like you were criticizing Joe for 
Like, as though you were Joe's, like, bestie, like, you know, or not Joe, but uh, Alicia. Alicia, you can do better, honey. Why don't you get somebody who brings home the bacon? Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> Joe, you know, Alicia, you can, but, but, like, I'm, for goodness sake, and she's dating someone who's not bringing any cash. I, I, that is a fair point. I think that's, that's sort of, like, on Alicia, and not, not so much a problem with the writing, but, uh, I think that's, that's a fair point. Because, from what I've seen, Joe, Joe doesn't seem to be a very, like, uh, I don't know, she, she doesn't seem to be fit for uh, a relationship, generally. Not Alicia, but Joe doesn't seem to be fit for one. But that, but we'll see. I, I, I would, I would, I think a bit, good writing would be kind of proving that based on how the character's been written, so, which is unfortunate for Alicia. But uh, I mean, it seems like next issue they'll get married, so we'll see. Mm. That's, that's what kind of like like kneeling you for. Like, are you still mad about that? I am. <laughs> Fair I enough. mean, I'm not as like livid as I was originally. Obviously, my anger cools over time slowly though um but yeah i i i have a larger point about the, the luke and babs relationship okay is it about interracial relationships what no because <laughs> <laughs> the way you set that up i'm like oh gosh this is gonna be something big i can tell you've been on sort of a race kick with your the writing that you've been doing yeah and it, yeah exactly well the country has but like um i no i honestly didn't think about that I, I mean, I don't care. I like uh, Carol Danvers and um, Rhodey. They're dating. Oh, are they really? Well, I mean, I remember you and I did the whole episode about uh, John Stewart and Hawkgirl. So, oh, absolutely. I, I know that you don't care. Um, I, I really didn't think about that. Okay, here's my thing. This is kind of a bigger point. I, I, I would like to hear what you think about this, and hopefully this doesn't annoy you. Um, <laughs> Why do you keep thinking you're, I'm being annoyed? This is like the third time that you've said that. You've grown darker and more bitter over the years. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, okay, so I talked about like when we were talking about the 90s issues with Batman, how I like Batman to be a more cerebral, calmer individual in the recent years. I mean, ever since The Dark Knight, when he became like the, like, the most popular character in the universe again. I, and I said this on, on various points in the DB podcast. He's been kind of portrayed as sort of a more mainstream, recognizable character where he's less nuanced. And he's kind of, in my opinion, he's more, more he's, he's kind of marketed to be the sort of like angry, violent kind of guy. And people kind of take that as right. We're like, oh, that's the kind of person he is. And I know oftentimes you say, whoa, Batman, you know, I was listening to the Killing Joke episode and you didn't really see Batman as being someone who had the level of compassion that I did when it came to the Joker and stuff. And so I feel that, like, in the last few years, because of his popularity, the character has sort of, like, you know, transitioned into being a different version than, than how I recognize him. And by, and throughout, and, and the way they do, they've done that is by, you know, making more violent, making more angry, at least in the, the beginning of the New 52. And they give him all these girlfriends in the New 52, like, uh, what's her face? You know, having sex in the office and all that stuff, and then Catwoman and all that kind of stuff. Oh gosh, what was her name? I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. In Detective Comics, like that yeah, was sort of like she's a reporter. That's all I remember about her. That was sort of like, like like this is who Batman is based on what you might think he might be, as opposed to who he actually is. Someone with STDs. Oh God! <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's be honest. Do you think he's bringing protection in his utility belt? 
I always thought he would be. Are you serious? <laughs> well, do, did we not do that um, Son of Batman commentary where, where Nightwing says, you know, he always told me to wear protection, and now he doesn't. I would. <laughs> this is someone outside of the costume. I don't, how, how often is Batman thinking? This is, how often is Batman looking to have sex in that costume? Which means he sh- he's not going to be bringing protection with him as Batman. Maybe maybe, maybe they frotage. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't want to. It's not dirty. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, what have I done? My my point is that. <laughs> yeah. What is your point, Donovan? My point. Okay, they kind of lead in. So. My point is that, like, Batman, to sell, the, to further sell the character in his pop, and make good his popularity to the masses, he's been made something that, that he wasn't before. Now, Stella, we all know that Barbara Gordon is your daughter. <laughs> and. I like to think of her as my sister, but okay. I actually heard that from a teenager on YouTube. I don't know where kids say that these days. We, we, you know, this whole new Burnside Batgirl sort of thing where now that Barbara Gordon is the main Batgirl again, the, 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 the creative team Batgirl has tried, you know, made her very, upfront and capable, very smart, very action-oriented. And you and I have talked about like how her flirting, or at least how the men in the comic are always drawn to her. I know, you, at least, I don't know, you can cut this out if you want to, but you said you're not really down with that in terms of how it's been written in the way it has. And I think that like this relationship with Luke thing, it's sort of like endemic of that, because I feel it, it's, it's just so jarringly rushed that... It's along those ideas that, like, well, Barbara Gordon is so awesome, she can get any guy she wants. And that would very well be true. That was kind of true pre-Flashpoint. But in this way, I think it's just kind of getting in the way of the story. I think that, like, it's along those lines of, you know, lines that I don't like where, like, you know, Bruce tells her you were always meant to be Batgirl kind of thing. Where, like, it's, it, I feel that, like, they're telling us about the character more so than they're showing us. And I really would have appreciated, uh, some Aaron monologues from this character. Now, I know that, like, Throughout your interviews, they said, they said that they'll never do that in this run. Show her what's going on inside of her head. But I feel that, like, this is an instance where that would really help, where otherwise it hurts. And I think that, like, this is sort of, like, endangering the character to be a lot more, I don't want to say two-dimensional, but less nuanced by having these things be these, this kind of cut and dry. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I think that, like, that with this sort of, like, you know, oh, well, this guy shows up in one next year and the next issue they're dating... That is, from a storytelling perspective, that's problematic. I don't, I don't care about who it is or, or whatever. But like, there's got to be a lot more of, because that doesn't happen in real life, you know. Like, 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 to be honest, in real life they would have just hooked up and not actually started in a relationship. So the fact that they are going to be in a relationship is, a, it's just kind of like silly to me. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is rectified in the next issue with a lot more of a deeper introspection as to where her state of mind is, rather than it is uh, in this issue. Do I? Am I making any sense? Yeah, so like, almost are they watering down um, the character's potential, I guess, to be mm-hmm. a, a strong character on her own without having these weird little moments. I feel like we've gone down on a weird path. And I, I guess I'll sound hypocritical, right? Because at the beginning, I liked these little moments where she and Jeremy, there'd be a little heart, like little, you know, Babs Tar would draw a heart, something like that. Um, but that was the only relationship potential that there was, you know, and that wasn't full on flirting. I think it was just like nice little interactions and somewhere along the line, we went from, you know, the intention of having a fun comic to potentially like a teen slash girl drama issue, which is worse, (laughs) which, yeah, no, it's it's not, but by by, by reputation, it could be. 
Yes, I don't want it to get to that path that she is, that she's got a boyfriend of the, of the arc. And every arc changes. Uh, that would be super depressing. And, and I'd feel like I'm hard on her and what her interactions are. And it's funny because I listened to a podcast talking about it and, and, you know, the people, they didn't understand why anyone would be upset that she had partied and, you know, didn't remember where she was and when she woke up and things like that. People didn't understand that sort of thing. And I don't know if it's like my perspective and sort of like my um, value system. Irony. Well, that bothered me too. Is it because it, it didn't it didn't jive with how the character is traditionally known to be? I mean, she can be however young she can be. Yeah. But not knowing where she is when she wakes up doesn't seem like something that any of the Bat family would do. Right. Yeah. And 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 you know, in my discussion with the the writers, obviously there was some deeper problem going on because of what had happened prior. You know, in, in Gail Simone's run. But I, you know, I, I look at these, at what she's doing, and now I'm I, to the point almost like if I were in school with this person, this would be the type of person that I'd be like, oh, my gosh, she's flirting with this person again. And that's never the type of character that I would want, you know, Barbara to be, nor do I think that she is. And you and I got into a debate about this sort of my ideal system, I guess, of what who Barbara is over the phone, and I think we were on two different pages uh, because – Yes, I, I'm thinking about her character when she first began, and I feel like uh, even though we are in a different era and we're trying to spice it up a little bit, I feel like her, her core character should be the same. And that, you know, if there are too many changes, then it, it's almost the, the character will start deteriorating, and then it's going to be like this is a character that I don't recognize as much anymore. Yeah, that, that's and what I said. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, obviously she's just flirting right now. So while I may, you know, not like it as much, I, I think if we get to the point where she starts sleeping around with people, and again, this is my core value system, but I honestly do not think that that is a Barbara Gordon thing to do. If, if that were to start happening, I would seriously have a problem with that. Well, I actually did some research, and, and when I was writing something for something else, mm-hmm. and aside from that, we know too, she's never actually been shown to have sex with anybody. Yeah, see, and um, and I personally, you know, my, I don't, I don't find that to be in and of itself bad. I don't want to say, well, she's flirting with people, so she, I, I don't want to slut shame her necessarily. Mm-hmm. To me, it's it's an instance of I don't care if she flirts with somebody, but be consistent with who she's interest, interested in. Yeah. And I don't think that she's shown more interest in Luke than she has shown with anybody else, any other ongoing male character in this series. So for her to like kind of just choose one out of a hat, the way it's presented feels disinterested in making it interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, by, and, and, and that kind of ends up coming her having her come across as shallow. And I don't think that's anybody's intention but it's just so I don't have a problem with her flirting with people, but like handling her, like you know, oh, I'll choose you because you were in this issue last time, like that bothers me. Yeah, and I think you know, there's a lot to be said for for shows and comics that there's sort of this slow burn of a relationship, and maybe there's just one. Uh, and I think I, I popped up just with Sherlock, you know, the BBC. I thought about that. Remember him and the medical examiner? Now it was very one sided. Oh, what's her name? I forgot her name. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. But that was a consistent thing that, you know, you knew that if they were in the same room together that she would sort of be fawning over him and something like that. So I feel like if they had picked one person, and I thought honestly that it was going to be Jeremy, and then we got distracted because we brought in Liam, and then not really Jeremy again, but then all of a sudden it's Kadir. 
And then it's almost like the writers spoiled themselves because they were thinking in advance that Jeremy's got a flawed character, so that's not going to work. So we're going to bring in Luke. It's almost like they thought too far ahead and didn't develop something. You know, one of my main points about this, because I'd love to see Barbara with somebody, you know, for more than three issues. That'd be nice to see that develop. But I also think that coming off of the Simone run, we just need to sit down and focus on Barbara Gordon as a character. I think we need to really get in tune with her, and she needs to figure out her life first before all of a sudden having a partnership with somebody else on the romantic level. Again, I don't. I personally don't have a problem with her on principle for somebody. You know, if she's shown, if she's shown to be having sex with somebody, I don't think that in and of itself is bad. But it always matters in the context. Yeah. Like even with Liam, I thought that that had. had that, I think it was, I think. That was like a year ago. I think that was a little quick, but I don't, uh, when she was dating him, but I don't think that was, that was outside the realm of, you know, what I found to be fine with the storytelling. With this one, it just, it, it really bothers me that like, you know, oh, are you applying? You bet I am. That, that was like, first of all, it's cheesy, but also it's just like, what? It almost feels like, it, it feels like they're, to me, they're doing it to like, like you say about like the differentiating, uh, presenting, presentation of Barbara Gordon, like with Batman, they have a, they're 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 presenting an idea of Batgirl and not who Batgirl actually mm-hmm. is in in my mind and I don't I don't know if, if this is about I, I think that's what we're our uh, opinions which match are subjective and I don't think if you know it's as clear cut as you know certain issues of Red Hood and the Yellow suck it's not that that like yeah. cut and dry yeah. but I think that like it's because we're you know we're long time readers who are seeing mm-hmm. this I think it's sort of like a uh, a blip on our radar that we're going to be watching out for from now mm-hmm. on. And, and clearly, I'm not the I'm not the best person to ask in terms of being unbiased because I've like <laughs> I've if if I am the mother of Batgirl, I've watched her from her birth, you know, develop <laughs> over this, have a relationship with you know Jason Barr that was longstanding, then have a couple like not as deep relationships with uh, Senator Cleary and then the the lawyer and everything. Um, so, you know, I've seen this character and how she deals with relationships. So my opinion is going to be very different than someone who has just started with, you know, the Burnside uh, background. I'm going to be more critical on it. And yeah, it's, I think, uh, keeping, keeping an open mind is always encouraged, but you know, you can't help somebody if they are naturally biased. Although you can talk them into a different opinion. So I think that, uh, hopefully the the writing, which will be better than this issue will uh, improve it. I, I hope that I'm not dragging your show on. We've done this for a while, but I apologize. But I thought that that was a real, that kind of stuck out to me the week following our, me reading this issue. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how long it lasts. I think that's the, te- like, it's quick. Is it going to last a while? If it does, then maybe it'll make up for it. But if not, then there'll be a problem, obviously. But I guess, you know, Team Jeremy is done, though, because she's probably lost all regard for him. I'm still on Team Kadir. You are, yeah, yeah. And I'm somewhat still, like, I wonder about Jason. But if I were to pick something, I'd be like, can she be single for a while? I mean, even if I love well, Dick, I'm like, please just, you know, you figure herself what out a, first. What about, uh, what was it, was it, was it Jim and Juan or whatever Dick's butt was? Oh, gosh, Jim and Juan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you get both of them, so. Well, what would you give this as a grade? I don't like doing this, uh-huh. but I gotta be as I'm, you know, gotta be as honest as I possibly can. Yeah. Five out of ten. Whoa! I genuinely, genuinely yeah, I did not like, did not like yeah. this issue. 
I, I, I don't think it's horrible, uh-huh. but but the cons are 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 toe to toe with the pros yeah, for me. Clearly, there are some issues. Um, I did drop it down as a, you know I gotta think through sometimes and, and discussions change my opinion sometimes. I'm gonna give it a seven point five. Fives have to be like really gnarly. Remember that one two two out of ten like that. <gasps> so uh, yes, yeah, seven. Well, no, this, this one didn't. This one didn't it is, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but this isn't. This didn't piss me off like the Gail Simone issues did, but it, there was there was such a lack of foresight that you know I, I don't never I want to repeat myself. I just you know I, I have my issues with it. It was not up to snuff as issue thirty six was with the uh, the anime. Well, the last one. Oh hell no! That's but nice. like uh, the last one out of my review issue forty three, I gave four point five out of five. Nice. I really liked yeah, that. It was a good introduction. So. This one, boop. it's gonna be funny because yeah. maybe our uh, people will see the opposite. They didn't like the first one. They'll like this one. So next up, we're going to do Gotham Academy number 10, The Cursed Play. And writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher, artist Carl Kershaw with Masasek, colorist Sergei LaPointe and Masasek. Olive and Pommeline are running away from the stage, which is on fire, most likely caused by calamity. Outside, Pommeline tries to explain why her mother and Olive's mother are connected when they are suddenly interrupted by the director, Simon Trent, lamenting that the play is in ruin. Now, Catherine, Map's creepy roommate that was rummaging in Olive's room, volunteers to be in the play, even though Trent doesn't recall having her in the Gotham Academy Dramatic Art Society, but she is, so she's one of those invisible people, I guess, that no one notices. <laughs> Take a look at the invisible girl. Here she is, clear as the day. Please look closely and find her before she fades away. Superboy and the Invisible Girl Son of steel and daughter of air He's a hero, a lover, a prince She's not there She's not there She's not there She's not there Seeing this as an opportunity to investigate theater, Olive also offers herself to be in the play and her friends, and Trent is so happy about this that he forgets all about Catherine. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, cause you can look right through me, walk right by me. And never know I'm there. Kyle begs off from the drama, and Colton continues to wear his sunglasses for some reason. I hope that's a story point that we'll figure out. And during rehearsal, the play is Macbeth BTW, the director yells at the stagehand who is missing his lighting cues. And this happens to be the nervous boy with the crush on maps. His name is Eric, who is too frightened <laughs> to continue because he has seen the phantom that has been destroying these sets and costumes of the play since it began. It sort of reminds me of the Phantom of the Megaplex, that Disney Channel original movie. Something's fishy at the Cotton Hills Megaplex. We must find out who was causing this chaos and make it stop. Is it Pete? Is it Karen? Is it a living person? (laughs) At all. Phantom of the Megaplex strikes again! Tonight. You need me to help you solve this. Disney Channel asks, who done it? Maybe you two guys have seen way too many movies. Phantom of the Megaplex, a Disney Channel original movie. I want him found. Phantom of the Megaplex, tonight at 8, 7 central on Disney Channel. Oh, yeah! <laughs> wow, nostalgia bomb. <laughs> 
Olive explains to the group that it is her mother, and Pomeline follows up the explanation, which ends up hurting Maps' feelings because Olive told Pomeline and not her. Betrayal! Olive tries to explain the situation when Colton finds some muddy footprints, which are clearly of a smaller person, not Calamity, and this then leads to a dead end. Later in Hugo Strange's office, Olive explains why she thought the Phantom was her mother, and Strange says that the play and her questions may set her down a dangerous path. On another day of rehearsal, someone tries to knock Olive out with a sandbag. They go after the person, but only find the cloak and Maps' map, which then leads her to believe that it is her roommate, Catherine. And they end up going to see Catherine, but she suddenly turns into a muddy creature, and Pomeline discovers a secret obsession slash beef that Catherine has with Simon Trench. So the gang finds Catherine on stage, and she suddenly turns into Clayface, who has a grudge against Trent after Trent stole his roles and wife. And it seems Catherine is only an aspect of his true form, something I have a question about, existing only to do his bidding. Clayface would have taken his revenge years ago had he not been in Arkham, at which point he recognizes Olive and makes an insulting remark. Trent and Clayface have a theatrical battle with several quotes, which I will uh, point out and explain. After which, Clayface hits Trent, and Olive and Maps use a fire hose to get rid of Clayface and find Catherine once more. Outside, Olive and Maps try to comfort Catherine, and Pauline shows Olive a paper that says Calamity has indeed returned to Gotham City, so she perhaps is alive. Next up, we've got Field Trip. <laughs> so first question what do you think about Macbeth as a layer to this story I love it <laughs> I love it so much I love Macbeth uh, I'm, I'm always battling in my head pretty much every day which <laughs> one, which Shakespeare play do I like more Macbeth or Hamlet and I guess when I'm reading this I guess it's Macbeth now, now I'm not I'm not I don't want to pretend to be like, like I'm a gigantic Shakespeare scholar because not every single line I remembered. Yeah. But uh, I love the scene when you have Pomeline, Olive, and Maps uh, uh, doing the whole three witches scene. Yep. That was cool. I mean, I, I just I thought that was awesome. Dart Warner, Slappy Squirrel, and Hello Nurse in the famous witches scene from William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Interpreted by Yakko for those viewers who, like Dart, Slappy, and Hello Nurse, have no idea what they're saying. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Loosely translated, that means abracadabra. Then a double fanny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Let's cook a snake. Start with my agent. Eye of mute and toe of frog. Wool of bat and tongue of dog. Sounds like camp food to me. Or a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. Stir until bored, serves 12. Unless you're Rush Limbaugh, then it's an appetizer. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Here's another fun recipe. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, which is mummy, ma, and gulf. Those are the ingredients of a hot dog. Of the raven, salt, sea shark. Root of hemlock. Go hemlock. Dig in the dark. Dig in the dark is a guess. Baby, can you dig it? Double, 
bubble, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Hocus pocus, when do we eat? Hey, what do we come up with? Hash? Corn dogs? Fondue? <gasps> By the pricking of my thumbs, something scary this way comes. A lady! I know a lady with high heel shoes and socks and pantyhose. A pretty lady! Stand out for pizza. So I quite enjoyed it. What about you? Yeah, I absolutely. I think it's probably the, the perfect one to have for this particular story, just with that spooky aspect. Since you know this is almost a macabre fun story, right? With a with a lighter tone because we had a werewolf last time. We've got these crazy things going on. So I think Macbeth of all the plays is is certainly the one. And how great that of was going to be Lady Macbeth. So I just love that there's such a wealth of culture that's involved within this book. And it's not only nerdy culture, but like highbrow culture, literature and everything. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just amazing. I think how well rounded it is. This is a perfect issue for Halloween oh, in that, uh, it's a spooky story. And this is the 10th issue in October mm-hmm. is the 10th month of the year. That it is. Absolutely. So you've been reading this all along. What do you think about, um, Calamity. Do you think that she was involved at all, or was it all Clayface in the previous issue with setting setting the the stage on fire? Was this was she there at all? I don't know. Um, Calamity's been like the one, like that main olive plot. I, I've really have not been able to predict very well mm-hmm. because, as far as I remember, and I've read a few issue, mm-hmm. we've not seen her in like the present time. Right? It's either been like you know Olive's hearsay or maybe flashbacks. Except for that weird thing that appears behind her. Oh, that's right. And that's appears right. and tells her to burn the wolf. <laughs> that's so right. appears well, when but, she's reading the letter and then appears later and tells her to burn the wolf. But generally speaking, I mean, she's not strictly a character, an operating character in the right, story. Right, right, yep. So because of that, I don't know what to really mm-hmm. think about in yeah. terms of like, you know, was it her or was it not her? Because I don't think, I don't feel I have enough information to make a solid guess. Mm-hmm. And it's always, it always ends up being like, oh, it was the boy on... The Lakestrom serum, or oh, it was Clayface, that kind of yeah. thing. So I feel that I can't, like you know, really say, oh, sure it was, because I, 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 I don't know. But mm-hmm. they might, they might prove to be that it was her in various scenes before. Yeah, yeah. It seems like obviously with the images we have seen before that it was her, but it makes a lot of sense if it was in fact Clayface slash Catherine, because of course he slash she was destroying the stage uh, per Eric's you know information at every point. So. It could have been, you know, some more sabotage here. So speaking of Clayface, I thought of you because I know that perhaps your favorite episode of Batman the Animated Series is Growing Pains. Mm-hmm. And I very much thought of that when I was reading this. So here's my question. Is Catherine an actual being or just a part of Clayface? Oh, man, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it looks like she's just a clay-facey being, but then he makes it seem like she's actually individual, but then she's walking around again, so if she is part of, if she's clay-faced, then why is she allowed to walk? I, I was very confused on how am I supposed to think of, of her. Yeah, I, I was operating on, this, on the same notes of like, well, Annie from that episode of Growing Pains right. was a creation from Clayface, and 
once he reabsorbed her, she was gone. But when she's blown, when he's blown away uh, by the the water geyser, she remains. And he mentions having a wife. So is she actually Hagen's daughter? And if so, does she have powers, or was he? Whenever time she would like, you know, mud out, was that him? Yeah. And she never had any powers. So she, you would see that like she would sweat clay in her first appearance. Yes. Those are kind of tiny details, yeah. but and it would see her be muddy. But then, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going through the comic and like. There's a scene of her going muddy and then disappearing, but then you see her uh, on the stage, them being like you know absorbed by Clayface. So maybe some, maybe in some scenes it was Clayface, and maybe some some scenes it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> How do you think of? Um, I mean, this is sort of the second big Batman villain that we've seen. What do you think? Yeah, after, after the Croc. first one, I guess yeah, it was Croc. So, do you like? Yeah, that like- they're, they're incorporating bigger ones because they've had these faculty members that have all had sort of ties to Batman mythos, but here he's the second guy that's really out there. At- oh yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, did you catch Simon Trent? Did yes, that he's reference? a great ghost. Yeah, good job. Oh, <laughs> uh, I like it. I, I do like the um, the B list Batman villains being referenced because it you know it referencing more makes makes as, as further establishes him as as part of the mythos. And I like that. You know, you have Hugo Strange, which is Batman's first major villain in the Golden Age. You have uh, Dr. Milo, who was uh, a villain from the 70s. Uh, Kirk Landstrom, obviously, was created in the 70s. Killer Croc was in the 80s. And Clayface, this seems to be like the strict... Mad- this, he actually looks just like he did in the anime series. Mm-hmm. Um, with the teeth and everything. Um, so, yeah. I really liked it. I do... I, I was kind of questioning... Because I, I liked how they did Croc, but I was kind of questioning, why is Clayface involved with this child's play? But then as he, as he gave exposition, you stole my roles and my wife. <laughs> so I guess, uh, I think Clayface would, I mean, if this was written to Dr. Comics, he would just kill, have killed Trent. Uh-huh. But because it's written in Gotham, Gotham Academy, the characters are not as are, are not as angry. So yeah. I liked it. Yeah, why sabotage when you can probably do something else, which is much faster? It seems like a lot of, a lot of effort for, for little payoff. <laughs> what are you going to do? Now, here's another question. Do you trust Hugo Strange? Now, in my previous episode, and I still keep to this, I believe that he is behind the Calamity stuff at school, and I think he's trying to use Olive to his own, I don't know, ill-begotten gains. Uh, though I, I don't know what they are, but I don't trust him, basically. Do I trust him? Absolutely not. <laughs> he's Hugo Strange! But so, you know, it may be Rachel Ghoul is the headmaster, and he's done okay, kind of. Well, Rachel Ghoul, well, that's right. But like, I mean, and again, this is this is me being like the big Batman nerd. Like, we're like, Rachel Ghoul is at least his, his his morality is his own, and it's it can be ambivalent and even good at sometimes. Hugo Strange is a bastard. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he was he uh, boom at the Golden Age. He created these freaking monster men. Um, he impersonated Batman and stole his memory at one point. He is just a he's a. He, I mean, I, I like him as a character, but as a person, he is he is an evil evil person. Who should not be trusted with, uh, anywhere near children. So when they, when they, when they show me this in the school, I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> why, why, why? How is this being? I mean, I can I can see Langstrom. How is this being allowed? <laughs> so um, I, I mean, this is new, new the post Flashpoint version, so I guess it doesn't matter as much. But like, no, I do not trust him. Um, and I'm I'm waiting for the moment where he's involved in everything, especially as as Olive's counselor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I think it's dangerous. Okay, so uh, this is the part, I guess, of the uh, of the issue that I go through and let you know what parts of the plays or what plays are represented. So on page 10, you've got this sort of uh, verbal battle between 
Trent and Hagen. And uh, he starts off with, uh, Trent says, how dare you disgrace the stage with your foul presence? Give us a taste of your quality, calm and passionate speech. What is that from, Donovan? One of your favorites. Uh, it, I feel that like it would almost be too easy if I said Hamlet. It is Hamlet. Okay. It is. Trent, you have taken my reputation, which was the key word for me when I was thinking about this. I've lost the immortal part of myself, and what remains is bestial. What do you think that one is? Reputation is the key word. Reputation? Is it Hamlet too? It's Othello! Remember, he says, my re- reputation. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, I will say, I'll say right here, and I hope I'm not telling you a bit. Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet are the three main ones that I know I can spot. Uh, like like Twelfth uh, Night or Henry V, other those are like might as well be another language to me. So I'll try my best, but don't don't have much oh, faith in it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then Trent has an aside, and it's funny because it's an aside in the play. Though this be madness, yet there is method in it. Is okay. I don't. <laughs> I feel that that is Macbeth. It's Hamlet. Oh, okay. Trent continues. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The Valiant never tastes of death but once. That's Julius Caesar, one of my favorites. I assume. I've heard heard that too. Hagen says, Oh, beware, Simon, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Othello? Yep. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. That, that, that reminds me of a, of a quote late in Macbeth. Uh, but it, it, it could also be concerning the play in Hamlet. I, it could go either way, but I will say Macbeth. As you like it. Oh, nuts! Uh, the boy would know that. Uh, screw the boy. Yeah. And Trent says, what's gone and what's past help should be past grief, and it's the winter's tale. Okay, okay. And then the last two... Hell is empty and all the devils Wait, are here. Says, hell, yeah, hell is empty. That was scary. Hell is empty and all the devils are here. I like that. I don't know. And that's from The Tempest. Okay. And his final quote is, Oh, misery. Oh, no. Olive says something. Sorry. Olive says, Brevity is the soul of wit, Clayface. And what is that? Yeah, that one's famous. Um, and I don't remember. <laughs> uh, brevity is the soul of wit. Um, it's one of your favorites. Okay. Hamlet. It's Hamlet. Okay. Yeah. So, because because a lot of the, I think a lot of the quotes are related to the play part of Hamlet, I think. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I enjoyed I enjoyed looking them up. And then finally, um, Trent also mentions Uta Hagen, and I thought I would um, look her up as well. And she's an important stage actress in the 30s and 50s, and she was also influential in, in developing techniques for acting, in case you wondered who she was. So what would you give this as a score? W- w- was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with this? No, no, that was it. Okay. So what would you give this out of 10 diplomas? Hmm. Um, I, I liked it as always. I don't think I've ever disliked a, an issue. I would give this a very, very strong. I don't, I don't want. I don't want to give it less than to do. I think it gives a very strong eight out of ten diplomas. Okay, and I'm going to give it uh, nine out of ten, and I think a lot of it is because of the the Shakespeare stuff that goes on. But I, oh, I yes. just liked it. It continues to be just an amazing title, and I'm looking forward to see what what's up with her mother. And finally, I want to mention at least Black Canary number four, and. You know, the previous issue, I said it was sort of slow. I wanted some things to happen. And I guess all we needed was a kidnapping because this story or this issue certainly answered that. And here we get some backstory of who Maeve is. And then we also see the motives of why she picks 
or kidnaps Ditto, and she ends up she ends up handing Ditto over to Amanda Waller, and in return, she gets the canary cry. So we see sort of her history as it it follows or runs parallel to Dinah Lance's, and then she just realizes that she needs a canary cry as well. So I'm looking forward to see where this progresses, and I'm glad that it answered the call to sort of speed up and, and give some action. And I'm going to give this 9.5 out of 10 rock stars. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Hey, thank you, Stella. As always, I appreciate you letting me give you a little break. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. I'm very glad to be with you today. Thanks for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. This month, I'll also look at a Batgirl appearance in Scooby-Doo Team-Up number 12. Batman 66 number 27 is cover dated November 2015. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laurel Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. Our story is entitled Bane Enters the Ring, and is written by Jeff Parker and art by Scott Kowalczyk. Our story opens with a blurb about Bane, a legend of a man with the power of ten. Then, the action starts at Carlton's Curio Shop, where a disguised Riddler makes off with a crystal skull, said to be worth $5,000. Batman and Robin arrive to expose the Riddler, but the villain manages to get away with the aid of sleeping gas from his cane. The next day, our heroes convene at police headquarters to try to solve the Riddler's new riddle. Friday. Stealing skulls is no small thing. Now to watch a man steal a ring. And Batgirl arrives with the answer and the meaning. A wrestling ring, where the Friday night feature match is with the title holder, the Hangman, versus a new contender from Mexico, Bane. Our heroes take front row seats, and during the match, Bane's corner man turns out to be the Riddler. And Riddler has Bane drink something, and he suddenly is able to take out the Hangman. Batman enters the ring where he goes after the Riddler, but is clotheslined by Bane. Batman and Bane fight, and a KO'd sound effect indicate lights out for Batman. Robin and Batgirl each entwine an arm of Bane, but Bane slams them together, resulting in the same sound effect outcome. Bane then proceeds to lift Batman, and seemingly breaks the Cape Crusader's back. Bane returns with the Riddler to Skull City, Mexico, a city he apparently rules and controls. On the next page, we see Batman, Robin, and Batgirl traveling by Batboat to Skull City. Our heroes mention that Chief O'Hara and Commissioner Gordon are already there, and explain that Batman's back was not broken at all, but that a Batarang tucked in the back of Batman's utility belt took out the brunt of Bane's blow. Bane and Riddler arrive in Skull City by the Banemobile, and Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara are quickly captured and put in a cell with the mayor of Skull City at the base of a pyramid. Our heroes find them, and the mayor explains that he was taken prisoner when he smashed the first crystal skull, as it was a component for making an elixir that gave Bane his power. Bane then takes on challengers in the wrestling ring. Batman arrives, and throws a device which locks and clamps over Bane's mouth, not allowing him to drink the formula. Batman and Bane then fight, despite Riddler's protests but Batgirl quickly cuffs the Riddler. Our heroes depart as Batman lets other wrestlers challenge Bane fairly. The end. This wasn't the first time a Batman comic did a take on professional wrestling. Way back in Detective Comics number 355, cover dated September 1966, in a story with a wrestling motif, Batman took on a villain called the Hooded Hangman. 
not to be confused with a villain known just as the Hangman in the Batman Dark Victory series in 1997. This was an interesting spin on Bane. We had the reference of Batman's back being broken, an allusion to the venom which gives him his strength. If we're going to bring Bane into Batman 66 continuity, using the Mexican wrestling angle and the backstory did seem to work on one hand. But the story was also a bit reminiscent to me of the third season TV episode of Batman entitled Ring Around the Riddler, where Batman and the Riddler squared off in a boxing match. Maybe too reminiscent. Riddler does boxing, and now he employs a wrestler. Also, this story depicted professional wrestling matches as having rounds, like boxing. I don't think that's the case in this style of wrestling. I don't remember that. Batman didn't seem to give Bane much of a fight at all in their initial encounter in the ring, where one would think Batman would show at least a little fighting proficiency and skill. He's Batman. The setting of Mexico in the story's conclusion was something different and Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara trying to blend in Skull City with their local clothing but still sticking out was still keeping in tone with the humor of Batman 66. Scott Kowalczuk did a nice job for the most part with the artwork and was a good fit for depicting Bane. Some of the action was confusing, but I don't know if he and Jeff Parker were on the same page with what was given. We did get some wordy panels explaining what was going on. Uh, the issue did have a nice one-page tribute to Yvonne Craig in the back with three photos, but the largest photo depicted Craig in the test version costume of Batgirl, a costume that was not seen in any regular episodes of the TV series. At the risk of being nitpicky, I thought another photograph with her in a costume regularly worn on the show should have been used. Still, I am glad Miss Craig did receive an appropriate and deserving tribute. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this story two and a half stars out of five. I'll give Batman 66, number 26, six and a half bats out of ten. Now, the pros, we had a nice new backstory on Bane, decent artwork, and, of course, the inclusion of Batgirl. Uh, some of the cons for me, a story with Riddler that seemed just a little familiar with Riddler in a fighting ring, professional wrestling matches having rounds, and no fighting prowess of Batman. Next up, Scooby-Doo Team-Up, number 12, cover dated November 2015. The story is entitled Gotham Ghouls and is written by Sholly Fish with art by Dario Brizuela. The Mr. Ink gang is summoned to a rooftop by Bat Signal, and nothing seems amiss as Velma correctly notes that most meetings in Gotham City are held on rooftops, usually near gargoyles. However, the gang sh is shocked to discover that they were summoned by Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. Before the gang can flee, they go into the criminal's apartment, where Harley explains that she stole an ancient opal of Osiris, and since then they've been cursed with bad luck. Velma suggests that they merely return the opal, but Harley refuses to do that. Then the ghost of Osiris appears. After some initial panic, Shaggy is confident that the ghost is really Batman. But when he pulls off the ghost's hood and cloak, and this resembles like the spook villain from the old Batman uh, uh, series from back in the 70s, the ghost is revealed to be Catwoman. Velma explains that the opal of Osiris is a cat's eye opal, and Catwoman explains that she had hoped by scaring them that Harley would give her the opal. Catwoman snatches the opal and tries to escape, but Daphne gets it and then tosses it to another ghost who reveals herself to be Batgirl. Catwoman snatches the opal again and the chase is on. Wacky and zany hijinks ensue, resulting in all the villainesses being tied up. The end. Bat fans know that Batman and Robin did team up with Scooby-Doo on occasion in the new Scooby-Doo movies back in the 70s, and subsequently those were released on DVD. The comic book itself has made some news. With the Harley Quinn character being a very hot property, this issue having a low print run and being a kid's comic, 
there's been mention on another podcast of price gouging on the day of the book's release in the New York City area. One website confirmed that an aftermarket sale took place of $31 for a copy, which appears to be the high point watermark for this issue. Now, at the time of this recording, $10 seems to be a common asking price for a copy of this comic book on eBay. Myself, I saw no evidence of markup in the suburban Chicago area comic book store that I frequent. Copies of this book were on the shelf days after the release, whereas Batman 66 was sold out. I suspect uh, the shop manager was a bit savvy in his ordering. Now, for those who missed out, this issue will get a second printing, and that will be released on October 14th. Now, as for the issue itself, it was a fun, whimsical romp that was entoed with what I remember from my Scooby-Doo viewing back in the day. This is a kid's book aimed at a kid's audience, and there is no real sense of danger or peril. Harley doesn't seem to harm anyone, and she's wearing her original red and black costume, nothing revealing like you'd see her in her own title or in Suicide Squad. There was some humor, too, and the artwork was good. Batgirl has on her gray costume with yellow gloves and yellow boots, and has a black bat insignia. This story reminded me a lot of Harley Quinn's first comic book appearance way back in Batman Adventures number 12, with Catwoman being the main culprit in the story. I don't know how I'd grade this, to be fair. This book isn't for everyone, but after reading a lot of stories in a darker tone, this was a nice change of pace, and had a little something if you were just a Harley Quinn or Batgirl comic book completist. I'll give this 7 out of 10 bands. Before I go, shout out to Donovan Morgan Grant. Hey Donovan, sorry about the last podcast. Naturally, the time I leave out alliteration, my William Dozier voice sign-off, it's the time it's acknowledged. I hope to make it up to you, and thank you very much for listening. And listeners out there, please feel free to leave any comments on the TBU website, and please leave us a good review over on iTunes. Thank you for your support. What massive monsters will horrifically haunt our heroes in the next issue? Which two femme fatales will pilfer and plunder in a future issue of Batman 66? How will Batman 66 close out its run, and where will it leave this reviewer and podcaster? The answers to these Donovan-inspired daring dictions to be decided directly. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to skip Babs in the Tube for this month, but it will be back in November, so stay tuned for that. So I am finishing up with my last segment, and that is, of course, the literature recommendation. And I was only going to have one, but then I just quickly finished another book, so I'm going to mention both of these. So first is a nonfiction book. It's called The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. And this is centered around the life of Joe Rance, a farm boy from the Pacific Northwest who was literally abandoned as a child and set during the Great Depression. The Boys in the Boat is a character-driven story with a natural crescendo that will have you racing to the finish. In 1936, the University of Washington's eight-oar crew team raced its way to the Berlin Olympics for an opportunity to challenge the greatest in the world. How this team, largely composed of rowers from foggy coastal villages, damp dairy farms, and smoky lumber towns all over the state, managed to work together and sacrifice toward their goal of defeating Hitler's feared racers is half the story. The other half is equally fascinating, as Brown seamlessly weaves in the story of the crew itself. This is fast-paced and emotional nonfiction about determination, bonds built by teamwork, and what it takes to achieve glory. And it certainly is fast-paced. I really did not want to put it down once I started reading it. I really enjoyed this. If you liked Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, then you will like this. So I, I highly recommend that. And my other recommendation is actually fiction. 
and the title is Ella Minow P by Mark Dunn, and this is what the back cover tells you about it. Ella Minow P is a girl living happily on the fictional island of Nollop off the coast of South Carolina. Nollop was named after Nevin Nollop, author of the immortal phrase containing all the letters of the alphabet, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Now Ella finds herself acting to save her friends, family, and fellow citizens from the encroaching totalitarianism of the island's council, which has banned the use of certain letters of the alphabet as they fall from a memorial statue of Nevin Nollop. As the letters progressively drop from the statue, they also disappear from the novel. The result is both a hilarious and moving story of one girl's fight for freedom of expression and a linguistic tour de force sure to delight word lovers everywhere. An amazing, amazing book. Super fun. And it's especially, it actually gets super difficult to read the last few letters because they've lost so many vowels. They've had to do more phonics than actual letters. I mean, for example, U, Y-O-U, they lost all of those they could only use like 25% of o's in their in their writings then they lost y and u so they had to spell u e w e but it's just really amazing and it's told through letters like it said i really encourage you to pick this up and it's a shorter one so it actually goes by rather quickly so those are my two literature recommendations so don what where where can we find you uh, Nashville, Tennessee, although I won't tell you my address. Okay. <laughs> you can find me on The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. That's the show that I've started with with my friend Jesse. Um, we are counting down to the end of the podcast, the end of The Next Dimension. Our final episode will be on December, but for yes. now you can check out... <laughs> is it? Is it really? <laughs> you think you're gonna, the last episode, you don't think you're going to be sad that you're done with it? It's it'll, I'll, I'll have a mix of emotions. I, I, uh, yeah, the last four years. Actually, I, I love doing this show, so it'll be intense. You can check out our, our, our 44 episodes on T, uh, no, sorry, dbznextdimension.lipson.com. We're also on iTunes and Facebook, and we also have recently started a Facebook group as well. Myself and Stella, we both, uh, co-host a podcast with our friends, I say friends, Josh and Chris on, uh, the Comic Book Film Review Podcast, review spelled R-E-V-U-E. That can be found on cbfreview.lipson.com. We're also on iTunes and Facebook. I uh, review the Batgirl title for thebatmanuniverse.net. I write uh, essays, social, political, comic-related essays on the Hood Utilitarian. And I, I will say this because it actually dropped today. I was actually featured on a um, Geekdom 101's uh, YouTube page oh. on the... Uh, as he, as he titles it, the icons of the Dragon Ball community. I was interviewed for my podcast. Wow. And that is supposed to, I'm not, listen back to it, but this should actually drop today. So by the time you're hearing this, it should be available to hear on Geekdom 101's YouTube page. So check that out, please. It's, it's not odd. It's not video though. Uh, we recorded it as a podcast, but he puts it on YouTube as, as sort of like a, a, a visual podcast. Oh, okay. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah, that, that was, it was a lot of fun. And I, I, I'm very honored to be, uh, thought of as an icon of the community. He was a, Huge fan of my, my of my show. Yeah. And he has a very good following himself. So he does. Uh, Danny over there does good work. But uh, those are where you can find me. And uh, thank you very much once again, Stella, for inviting me on. As you always should do. Think, think as of me. I always else. should do. Indeed, so. Yeah. No, it's you know it's been a while. I guess maybe we always have these gaps of time before you know December, which is the anniversary. But it seems like it had been even longer for whatever reason. So I'm I'm glad, and I I feel like you came on 
at, at a perfect time, just with the 90s stuff, and then with what went down with Batgirl and the bikes that ran their own. <laughs> um, but so it was, it was perfect. So, at, you know, it's always such an amazing and fun time to have you on, so I'm glad that you could be on. Oh, the feeling, the, the feeling is more than mutual. Oh. Well, as always, send any questions or comments to BackgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BackgirlTheOracle. And like the Batman universe on Facebook as well. And Dustin is still looking for some people to uh, write reviews, write work for the site, either with collectibles, toys, do some news. So hit him up at thebatmanuniverse.net if you care to work for the team. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks again to my special co-host, Donovan Morgan Grant, and we'll see if the gauntlet has dropped between him and Shag. But until the bloodbath comes, fly on, Bats lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>